1975. Here we go. Thank you very much, Maurice, for those very kind words. Good evening, of course. My name is Norman. I'm an alcoholic. And I certainly want to thank Frank for the invitation and the opportunity to be down here and also to congratulate him on his tenure as the secretary here. You know, uh, talkers are a dime a dozen, but uh, good secretaries are hard to get. So uh, we want to congratulate you on your one year, and also congratulations on all of the people that received their birthday cakes here this evening. And I sincerely hope that you have many, many more that they never quit coming. And to all of the new people that are here tonight for your first, second, or third meeting, or your first 30 days in Alcoholics Anonymous, which I, you know, I think it's kind of sad, you know, that we got to go through that for 30 days. You know, it was tough enough. Uh, when I came in and they said, you know, everybody here for your first two or three meetings, why well, raise your hand? So, you know, in three three meetings, you know, real quick. Uh, and now you got to go 30 days, and in groups like this, Christ, they make you stand up so we can all stare at you. You know, it's a miracle we're getting any new people in the AA at all anymore. But uh, to all of the new people, why well, we really are happy to have you. But if, if you got a drinking problem, I'll tell you what they told me. You never have to take another drink again if you don't want to. And what you're going to find here in Alcoholics Anonymous is a group of people who will know most everything about you, who will still accept you, who are not necessarily interested in where you've been or where you're trying to go, but they're damned interested in what you're trying to do today. Uh, and as an alcoholic, that's a break off the top, you know, because when I was out there drinking, why, you know, nobody was really interested in me, unless they heard I was going to jail or leaving town, and they were, you know, delighted over that. Other than that, you know, nobody really give a damn one way or another, but uh, this changes. If you're new here, why, you're surrounded by people who really care if you... I want to do something about your drinking, you use that nickel therapy they told me about when I come in. They said you put the money in the telephone and you make the call and people will be down there, but you make the call before you take the drink. And it worked out well, and people did come down to see me when I needed them. They did sit there not with pity and with hate, but they sat there with compassion and with understanding. They were folks from Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's got to be the best deal I ever had in my life. Uh, and I'm a guy that looked half the world out there trying to find the best deal, you see. Uh, and I didn't find it till I got here until I, I met this great group of people that were going to know all these things about me would still accept me for exactly what I was trying to be today. For the benefit of the new people that are here tonight also to qualify the initial statement I made, I'm an alcoholic and I'm not by any stretch of the imagination an authority, a consultant or a counselor on the program Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm an example, good or bad, that AA works, that it hasn't been necessary for me to take a drink, steal anything, or go to jail now for 21 years and six months. <clears throat> and I'm sure nobody's really over, overly impressed with that statement I just made. And frankly, I'm a little upset. <clears throat> but, uh... <laughs> but I'm impressed. <clears throat> you can believe that. And not only that, but you never know. As I mentioned many times, we may get a pension program going here. And if we do, I want to get credit for all my time. You see, now that I've got over 20 I'm vested, so I bring it up every time I have the chance. But to new people that are here, uh, you find these things difficult to digest. You saw some folks up here tonight, and <clears throat> three-year cake and a couple of five-year cakes, and then you hear somebody make a statement that, you know, 21 years, and you think, my God, you know, this is a lifetime, and it's, a, you know, it's impossible for anybody to stay sober for those long periods of time. And I can sympathize, because this, it hasn't been that long ago that I can't remember sitting in that first AA meeting, and I was 29 years old, and a guy stood up in front of the group, and he said, you know, I had a drink for nine and a half years, and I, I thought he was the biggest liar I ever heard. I wanted to go right out of the chair. I thought, impossible. You know, what the hell is he trying to tell me? Nine and a half years out there in that rotten jungle, and he, 
<clears throat> dealing with all them rotten people and he doesn't sneak a hooker from time to time and he's been doing that for nine and a half years and he's honest and he doesn't steal and on you know i couldn't visualize anybody going out there for that period of time i you know if this guy had said he hadn't had a drink for nine weeks i'd have gone up to him after the meeting and said the hell you have buddy how'd you do that you know i could understand the weeks but not the years out there and i didn't hear him you know make that statement that he'd been making it one day at a time and i think you know this is paramount it's very important for the new people it is a a one day at a time program and i've been cutting it out there one day at a time and i learned a long time ago that as far as my drinking is concerned that if i take care of the day why chances are the week's going to take care of itself and <clears throat> well a month and well a year and before you know it why hell 21 years have run by and it seems like yesterday that uh, it's gone that fast it seems like yesterday that i sat there in those early AA meetings, you know, going through the metal gymnastics and wondering, you know, what the hell am I doing here? <clears throat> Why am I an alcoholic? You know, I wasn't overjoyed with the fact that I was an alcoholic and a member of AA. There wasn't much class to be an alky in those days. You know, I didn't run around the city of LA and tell everybody, you know, I'm a 32nd <clears throat> degree alcoholic on a pin here, you know. And, all <clears throat> and I uh, sat, like I'm sure all young guys, or maybe just guys, period, and women too, sat there and went, you know, why in the hell am I an alcoholic? My God, of all the things I could have been. Now, I didn't go down to my high school counselor, and he said, you know, Norm, what would you like to be? And I told him, yeah, man, I like to be an alcoholic. You know, marvelous. We got a, you know, program for guys like you. So I went out and tore him up for 15 years, and here I am. But that, uh, that wasn't the plan. It wasn't the program. It was not a vocation. <clears throat> I sat there and went through it, you know, of the rationalization. Why am I an alcoholic? And if you knew, I'm sure you're going down that road. Uh, at first, you know, I blame my people, my family, my nationality. I, I'm Irish and Italian, and anybody you know, who's got that going for him has got to be hacked one way or another. Well, uh, and I thought that was a deal. That was my problem with the booze. My people are all boozers. They, they're all heavy drinkers. They make it and drink it, and we do a hell of a job with it out there. But uh, nobody in my family is alcoholic. You know, that upset the hell out of me, I'll tell you. I, you know, sitting there and thinking, you know, I'm the best in the family. Now, why have I been given the cross to carry that whole rotten outfit, you know? I, <clears throat> and once again, you know, I'm, I'm blaming them, but that wasn't my problem. I come to find out, you know, being Irish and Italian, all that really means is you're not overly intelligent. That's, you know, it's, it doesn't mean you're going to have any booze trouble and you're not going to have booze trouble, you see. So uh, my people had uh, <clears throat> no bearing on my alcoholism nor did the environment or where I was born and raised used to... I used to think that was it, you know. I, the guys say, how come you go to AA? The environment, man. I had a hell of a past out there. I'm born and raised in L.A. You know, anybody born and raised in L.A. has got to be hacked up, you know. Well, <clears throat> that really isn't it, because you know and I know a lot of people came out of L.A., and they've never been drunk in their life, and they have never been to jail, so evidently the environment didn't play a part. I am alcoholic, and if you're new, maybe your problem's identical. I am alcoholic because of the whiskey I consumed, you see. Uh, I came to that giant conclusion after I'd been sober for a while. Uh, you know, my trouble was booze. I drank that whiskey out there as hard and as fast as I could drink it. And somewhere in that lottery of my life, I crossed the invisible line that they told me about in AA, from the social aspect of drinking into the compulsive area, where one's too many and a thousand aren't enough, where I'm looking for the answer to living out there in a quart of whiskey and I just can't find it, you know, where my whole life revolves around booze and people that drink it and people that sell it. After five or six drinks, I got no control over what I'm going to do or what I'm going to say or how the day's going to end up. After five or six drinks, well, I want to keep going out there until there's absolutely no more left. I want to keep drinking until I'm straight out on the floor, you know. And many times, you know, you can get up off of the floor and go out, throw up, and start all over again, you know. And I have done those things. I wanted to drink until there was no more left. 
And many times I couldn't. I made periodic uh, by a lot of things. And there's a lot of guys had my problem. I, I was made periodic by economics, uh, money. Uh, <clears throat> I never had enough money to buy all the booze I wanted. Uh, I was made periodic by jails. It was difficult to buy when I was in jail. I <clears throat> was made periodic by a red-headed Irish wife. Uh, <clears throat> I happened to marry a woman that uh, was red-headed and Irish, and she had a rotten disposition, a violent temper, and yelled at me all the time. So, you know, you got the heat on out there all the time. You got to get the heat off, so I'd have to get sober. But I never wanted to. I wanted to continue to drink. I could summarize that very well or illustrate it by that story that was going around the program last year. You know, the guy said, <clears throat> can I buy you a drink? And, you know, no, I've got to be home for Christmas. Uh, you know, that's the way it was with me out there. And, you know, and incidentally, if you're new, that, uh, that wasn't an original story. You see, I, uh, I took it, uh, I stole it from somebody else. Uh, as you do everything in AA that's decent and good, you, you, you take it from somebody else. You, you give the guy credit for it for three times, and after that, it's yours. That's the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the way it was. You know, I, I drank out there. Uh, you know, booze consumed my life. I had crossed this invisible line. I also have an alcoholic type personality. I am a rationalizer, a justifier, a compromiser, and I got a rotten attitude. And you, you know, you don't need a hell of a lot more than that. I, uh, I've had a lousy outlook on living all my life until I approached this program. I traveled half the world and half my life, making a complete ass of myself. I spent money I didn't have buying things I didn't need, trying to impress people I didn't like. And that was it. You know, that's the story of the algae. You know, I, I run all over hell trying to be all things to all people. I, I felt everybody was impressed by the things that I told them and the things that I said. I always wanted to be something I couldn't and I probably didn't want to be anyway. Uh, sitting in the gin mills, you know, and the guy says, what do you do? What the hell do you mean, what do I do? You know, I do it all out there. I thought everybody knew that. I, for Christ's sake, I'm the general manager of the universe. That's what I am. Yeah. And it was important that I let you know that. Sure. <clears throat> Run around the city, you know, on a day like today, out here in the desert with the windows rolled up in my car to make you think I had an air conditioner, you know. <laughs> it never quit. <laughs> I came to the program and I found out you know, all that that I've been going through really isn't necessary because I really didn't want to be on any of that. I really didn't want to do any of those things. When I came to the program, why the guys, they laid it out. They said, you know, don't impress us here in AA, friend. We've been impressed by experts and alcoholics and others because everybody in AA is an expert. Uh, I'm sure you have not out here in the desert, but in my home group, we got a lot of them out there, you know. Yeah. You go to my home group, you know, and you ask us anything. I don't care what you want to talk about. We're going to answer one way or another. And if we don't know what you're talking about, we generally say, that's true. You know, we go on from there. <laughs> As soon as you come in today, you're surrounded by experts there, you know. <laughs> I like a little on a guy one night, I was brand new, and I said, you know something, I've been in jail about 25 times. He said, the hell he has, son, I did that in a year, you know. So, right away, you know, right away you find out, man, no matter where you've been, somebody got there long before you did. No matter what you drank, you're going to find guys that drank more booze than you thought was built out there. So, if you're new, if you will, come on in tonight and grab the package that's available to you here. Take it on out there on that city street tomorrow and spend the day out there being yourself. It's a hell of an experience not having to justify your existence or compromise your life. Not if you don't want to. Just being able to, to be out there and, and be part of it, not coming from behind. What an experience it is. 
Tonight, if I may, I'd like to tell you a little bit about what I was like, what happened, what I'm trying to be like now, what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous means to me and some things that I've used to stay sober. And I don't tell this story to impress anybody about the amount of booze that I consumed or the problems or trouble I had, but frankly, I don't know a better way to talk about the program. When a man says to me, how does AA work, it's pretty basic. AA works because of the AA book, and without the book, there isn't any program. And my sponsor and all these flaky friends, when I came in, they said, if you don't buy the book, you're going to get drunk. So uh, if you're not going to get the book, you might as well get drunk now. You see, save yourself a lot of time. <clears throat> we heartily advise you to lay three and a half on the line and get that book. And so if you want to stick around, why, uh, you got the book. <clears throat> and the book in those days was a calculated risk. You know, it had that, that red and yellow cover. God, you could see it for a hundred yards, you know. So the night you bought the book, you <clears throat> put it under your coat and you went out with it. You know, you, <clears throat> you didn't want anybody to think you were trying to improve your life. You know, that's uh, typical of an alcoholic. I <laughs> didn't bother me laying around in uh, 11 western states and all them drunk tanks. <clears throat> it didn't bother me a bit. You saw, as a matter of fact, I thought it was rather funny from time to time. <clears throat> but change all that. No, don't let them know. Oh, God, I, I don't want anybody to know that I'm trying to be a decent citizen out there. Don't let them know I go to Alcoholics Anonymous. So <clears throat> that, of course, uh, you don't have to go through. <clears throat> Alcoholics Anonymous is a fine place to be, and the book is where it is. We got a little inflation going. It's running about four and a half, but so is ten high. So it's a you know, kind of a break-even when you lay it out. The book is the way it works. Number one, secondly, it's one drunk talking to another drunk, and between the two of you stay sober. And what do a couple of drunks talk about out there? They talk about all the hack and the hustle they had on the street. They talk about coming to the program and finding a better way to operate. They talk about things that they're using today in order to stay out of trouble. And to me, this relates to what I was like, what happened, and what I'm trying to be like now. I told you a great deal about myself. I'm a guy with an attitude problem. And if you've got an attitude problem, you've got a hell of a problem out there, you know? Because life and living is a matter of attitude, is it not? More so today than any time in my life. If I wake up in the morning and i got a rotten attitude, i got a rotten day. That's the way she's going. And I, you know, all the signals go against me, and the freeways are jammed, and the people I'm dealing with are terrible people. And this continues on until I have a change of attitude, and I wake up in the morning with this different attitude, and, and the signals now go with me, and the freeways aren't so jammed. And I'm seeing some of the same people, and I'm amazed at how, in such a short period of time, they've had such a marvelous change of attitude, you see. So I recognize today that my life and living is a matter of attitude as it has been all my life. Because the attitudes are what brought me the problems and trouble. Hell, I was going to jail before I ever started drinking. <clears throat> I was picked up not as a drunk in the beginning, but as a thief in the beginning. You see, I happen to be a thief by trade. I'm an alcoholic by absorption, and that's the long and the short of it. <laughs> I opened up the Midnight Auto Supply in the San Gabriel Valley, and uh, that consisted of, you know, hooking them car parts out there. It all began popping hubcaps, and finally I'd make a little money out of it. We just kind of branched the program out, and uh, yeah, got pretty messy gathering up all that crap. We just stole the whole car. So, you know, the, the, the business has moved out. And, you know, I still, you know, I loved every minute of it, and I could talk about it forever, but if you've never been there, it's hard to understand. You know, if, you, if you've never laid on the floorboards of a man's car and you're getting his radio out, and your buddy's out in the street and he's saying, man, Norm, that guy's coming out the door. you got about three minutes. God, you get that instantaneous exhilaration. You know, you just got to start shaking and the sweat runs and you die and you live and the love. And man, I just like doing it. I always felt God give everybody something. And I suppose that's what he handed to me. He was that's for the business. And it never stops. You know, coming in tonight, uh, as Maury was getting out of his car, why, I noticed his car too. And... As a matter of fact, I noticed the whole parking lot out there, you know, yeah. Uh, what an ideal setup, and you really wonder if they're still working. I'm sure they are, but... <laughs> 
that was the beginning, uh, and that was the end of my career, as far as being a criminal was concerned, because I was arrested, and I, and I went in front of a judge, and I was sentenced to go out to the Whittier Reformatory for seven years. Well, through circumstances, or maybe the juice, I really don't know, I, this thing was broken down, and, and the release came, and I came back to Los Angeles. But I had no change of attitude. I'm still looking for the synthetic existence, for the, the fantasy land. And, well, booze is a natural. Booze got me into the fantasy land. Disney's late, isn't he? You know, I've been to that fantasy land all my life. The dreamer out there. And it all began about 1940, Easter week in L.A. And Balboa Beach, the Rendezvous Ballroom, Stan Kenton and Padre Beer. Man, what a hell of a deal. You know? We'd suck on that old Padre and get a little buzzy, you know, and go to the dance hall and you always acted four times drunker than what you were. And dance with the dollies and breathe on them. I don't know, girls got that booze out there. You know, the big operation. I like being a big operator and I am not alcoholic. Not in the beginning. I kind of worked at it. I had a lot of fun. Uh, didn't get in a lot of trouble in the early portions of it, but I, I moved out of that old Padre into that Rainier Ale up to 10 High Whiskey, and let me tell you, when I got to that whiskey, I got the finest thing made since Money and Girls. Because, you know, one thing about drinking whiskey when you drank her, man, from the first jolt, it brought you to attention right now. That's what I liked about it, and it, it got you moving, that whiskey. It got you downtown, and I, you know, I want to get downtown now. <laughs> I've been in a hurry all my life, obviously, and that, that whiskey gets you going out there. That's what I like. It got you charged up. And that tin high, by God, economically, you never made a better buy in your life. Yeah. <laughs> 65 cents a pint, I think, in those days, how are you going to beat it? <laughs> and you felt every loving drop. It burned, man. It burned going and coming. Yeah. In the early days when I was training, it used to come up, you know, and run out my nose and made my eyes water a lot, you know. And it, one of your close friends standing around going, ain't that good? It's a good you can't get your mouth open. It's so good, Jesus, yeah, you know. But you keep at it, and you get to the day where you acquire the taste that I can remember I could drink a pint of tin high and never heave a drop. You know, you felt, yeah, you're there now. One of my AA associates years ago, he says, there's great advantages of drinking cheap whiskey. When you throw it up, you don't lose much. You know? yeah. It takes an algae to figure that out, doesn't it? Hell yeah. Well, if I was out there today and I'm drinking that $9 whiskey and you're flashing $9. $9. By hell, a guy could get sick all over again watching $9 go out, you know that. These alkies figure all these things out. But don't get me wrong. I've drank some expensive whiskey in my life, but after five or six drinks, how the hell could you tell the difference? I never could. You know, if a guy comes up and offers you a drink, did you ask him, you know, did you ask him to qualify it? You know, what kind of whiskey you got, you know? Hey, if you're a full-blown alky and a guy owes you whiskey, so let's go. That's all, you know. The only thing an alky worried about was, uh, are you going to run out? And it's an election day. You know, that's all. <laughs> so what kind of whiskey after five or six really didn't make any difference and I couldn't tell the difference? By January 1942, I uh, had a little more trouble with the police department. I'm also uh, have violated a probation. I'm also in Los Angeles again. I stand in front of the man who says, why, well, we've got an opportunity for you here. <clears throat> you can either go to jail or go to the service. Well, you know, that's not much of an opportunity when you start to figure that out. Well, uh, I've been to jail. It wasn't too good a deal, so I thought I would go in the service. Uh, we were in a state of war, and I was in a state of shock. It was January of 42, and I, I made the decision I would go in the United States Navy, and, and that was another one of my bad decisions. Uh, my life has been filled with bad decisions. When I got into the United States Navy, 
All the enemies I had in L.A. joined the Navy the same day I did. You know, they, and they created a hell of a lot of problems. I was a disgrace to the United States Navy and every ship's captain I served under and myself. And booze was the primary factor. Couldn't get along with it and I couldn't get along without it. I'm to that point now. I'm now starting to really rationalize and say, why me? And going through all of this. I blame other people and things rather than the true cause of it. I have three court-martials. I have 11 and a half months in the Navy pen up there in the top of Goat Island. I have 60, 70 days solitary confinement on bread and water. I have some other miscellaneous things that aren't important, but all directly due to booze. You see, if I'm not boozing, I don't have any trouble, but if I'm boozing, I've got a hell of a lot of trouble out there. I was uh, fortunate in the respect. I was able to fulfill my commitment of four years. I was discharged out Christmas Eve in 1945 and came to L.A. in 46. And the only reason I didn't get a kick out of the service is like most alcoholics. I, you know, I believe you know, most alcoholics, 80-90% of them, are damned hard workers. You know, they've got to be. An alcoholic has got to work 25% harder than anybody else just to stay even out there. Isn't that right? Oh, you know, we get around like on Tuesday morning and visit some of these corporations or companies, you know, and you see a guy going all over hell on Tuesday morning. Why, you know, he's doing four or five jobs at one time. Five gets a ten, that guy's an alky, you know. He missed Monday. There he goes, Tuesday, you know. Got to give her hell out there. Chair, he's got the heat on. Absolutely. Always coming from behind. If you're married, why, you go home, you know. If you got the heat on, why, you wash dishes, mop the floor, you know, scrub the walls, paint the house, get the heat on. He's gone again out there. I, you know, I spent a lifetime. Heat on, heat off. Christ, I never quit. And I'm sure this is the reason he get kicked out of the service. I was discharged out, and as I mentioned, come back to L.A. in 46, and in 46, I had the opportunity to hear about AA. You know, God moves in strange and mysterious ways. And no matter what you do or you don't do, that's the way it's going to work out. How many times in my life or your life have you said, I won't do that? I won't go back there, but yet you find yourself back in this position. Out of all evil, a certain amount of good has got to come from it. You know, and these things move in these strange ways. I, I have obviously the background, the education, vocabulary to explain these things. I only know that they happen. In 1946 is a prime example. In 1946, I was arrested four times. <clears throat> I've got two 502s and two plain drums. On the second 502, I stand in front of a judge, and the judge says, a year in the city jail suspended, three years probation. Your probation stipulates that you can't be in a place that serves or sells alcoholic beverages. If I hear about it, you go in the can or jail or whatever he said. And I knew enough about that judge to knew he wasn't lying because that judge and I had kind of grown up together. We had known each other throughout the years. Our careers had gone hand in hand, you might say. He's <laughs> a smart operator. You know, this guy got up on a superior court bench and I want to let you know I'm no meathead. You know, I'm right with him again. There you are. <laughs> well, like that day when he says a year, I was scared to death. And I knew that if I came back to that city, I'd get drunk and I'd go to the can, so I made a big decision. Yeah, I said, I won't come back to this town. Isn't that a big decision? Very brilliant. I stayed out of it a couple of months. <clears throat> I was down one of the beach cities one evening. It was going very well. I was drinking down there with a couple of high rollers, and I committed the cardinal sin. While I was drinking, I began to think, and that's a bad deal. <laughs> you should either think or drink, but don't get them both going at the same time. No. I got to thinking about that rotten judge, you know, in that lousy town. This is a free country, and God knows I'm a veteran. Yes, uh, uh, he'll rationalize that out. So I got my car, drove 75 miles back to that city, went down to a joint called the Green Terrace, met another friend of mine. We got in the car, <clears throat> closed the place, came out, went down a couple of blocks, a car pulled in front of me. <clears throat> I didn't see it, I hit it, and I ran from the scene of the accident because I was scared to death again. I find myself being pinned up against the car, cuffed and taken down and locked up. 
I wake up in the morning and dig out the book and slip and see they got me on a 501 felony drunk driving hit and run bodily injury involved. And but for the grace of God that looks after damn fools and drunks why four people didn't die that night. As you know and I know, alcoholism is a game of seconds and inches. That much, that fraction of a second. And I've been over that three and a half feet at the broadside of that car and the rate of speed I was traveling, I would have killed all four people. There isn't any question in my mind that God looks after damn fools and drunks. Because you're going to get so many chances out there in this lottery of living. They give you a fistful of tickets when you check in, and they say, go, and you go. And every time you mess up, they got to have a ticket. And if you mess up enough, you tap out. And I feel sincerely that I've tapped out. There's no tickets left. Now, I don't stay sober from the fear of it. But wouldn't a guy be a damn fool not to realize how very lucky he's been? How lucky was I that night in 1946? And how did it work out? Out of the evil came the good. The judge looked down and he told me in no uncertain terms uh, how he felt about me. And he sent me off to the city jail to do the time. And in the city jail, I shared a cell with a man who was going to AA. <clears throat> how it works, you see. I come back to a city that I say I'll never be back to, to get drunk, to go out in the wee hours of the morning, to, to hit a car, and there couldn't have been a half a dozen, to <clears throat> make the can, to stand in front of a judge, to go to jail at a particular time, to share a cell with a man. The only guy out of maybe 200, there was one guy getting out of the bucket once a week to go to AA, and this is the guy I draw, and he, he was a fanatic, this guy, he was sick, he, he went to these silly meetings, you know, and he, he would sit there once a week and tell me about these AA meetings, and uh, you know, you don't have a big audience in a jail cell, so I, I, you know, I got the full treatment. And it, this got to the point where I didn't want to talk to him about it anymore. He insisted I go to a meeting with him, and I told him, I said, Sully, what the hell are you talking about? I don't have a drinking problem. My, you know, my problem is them rotten people out there. That's my problem. Christ, I'm a victim of unusual circumstances. That, that jackass turned the car in front of me, and on and on the thing went. And I'm too young to be an alcoholic. In your case, it's much different. The hell, you're 36. You know, guy gets that old, the other quit drinking. You know? <laughs> What's left? You know, you're on the backside of that hill. <clears throat> I'm on the hill now. You know, I didn't know it. It isn't half bad. Everything changes, doesn't it? But uh, then, no. It wasn't for me, it was for people like him. And I said, you go ahead and go and leave me out of it. And I went down the road for another eight and a half years. And eight and a half years later, I pick up a telephone, you know, and I'm looking for a guy named Sully on an outfit called AA. And I found the AA program, and I'm still looking for my friend. And five, six years later, I heard through the grapevine, a guy had gone back to the booze after three years of sobriety, and, and he couldn't quit, and he drank his head up, and they put him in Camarillo Hospital with a wet brain. They said he had never coming back. And so I quit him, you know, I discounted him and went on my way. And here, three years ago, last December, I, I was in a meeting on the other side of town over in the Los Angeles area, and it was a Sunday morning meeting, and I, I looked down the front row, and who was there with a guy named Sully that I'd shared a cell with 27 years ago. And I thought, God moves in strange ways. Yes, he does. I was his buddy, how's it going? He says, great, I got nine weeks in. Norma just got out of the county hospital. I said, let's get together and go to some meetings, and I'll give you a little what I found, because you're the first sponsor I ever had. And he says, fine, we will. I'll call you, and he didn't. And this year he went back out one more time to the gates of insanity or death, so who knows? I don't know. I only know that strange things happen. I only know that this is the way it obviously has to be. I don't understand it. I can't rationalize it. I only know that that's the way it is. Well, obviously, when I went out of that city jail, I went back to drinking. I drank for those eight and a half years. I went to work one of the largest construction firms in the world. I stayed with them 11. In that 11-year period of time, I was at the right place at the right time, and the jobs were good. And the money was good, and I needed money by now because I got a high overhead by now. I met and married a red-headed Irish woman, and she is pregnant every other year, and that's a hell of an overhead, anyway you want to cut it. <clears throat> this marriage got off to a salty start. God and my bar associates had warned me. They said, 
you know, <clears throat> make sure that this woman's got a decent job. You know, that's important, Norm. But she had a hell of a job, right? And things are going our way, and two and a half months later, I walk in the house, and she says, Norm, I've been to the doctor. I'm pregnant. i got to quit my job. And I thought the house come down on me, you know. I thought, well, <clears throat> that's not too bad. That caper takes about nine months. <clears throat> we'll give her a couple to get on her feet, and we'll uh, get that rotten job back, and everything's going to be just like it was. You know, isn't that the story of the alcoholic? Everything's going to be just like it was. Well, Christ, that was 28 years ago, and that woman ain't turned to tap since that day, you know. No. <laughs> she had a silver in shape eight times before it was all done. It was incredible. I used to sit there in the bar still and go, how in the hell can this keep happening? I'm rarely home anymore either, you know. drinker and a bar drinker packs a hellacious overhead it's uh, not like a home drinker old home drinker is a low overhead drinker but i i never felt that the home drinker really reached his full potential like <laughs> now he doesn't get the coverage out there so who's around the house to tell how good you are huh her and her don't believe any of it anyway does she no but if you can get out to them saloons, you can let the world know how good you are. I like them joints. I like, oh, God, I, I like them dark lights and the rotten music that hammered at you. Love sitting there with them intellectual giants. The, the giants of industry as we sat there and, and solved the problems of the world, wondering what the poor slobs were doing tonight because the big money was there. We talked in millions and spent in thousands and never had ten. But we talked a hell of a lot, man. God, I used to love sitting there and you put it out when you got tired of talking and lying while you could look in the mirror. And they put mirrors in bars so that alcoholics can sit there with that Maybelline look. You know, that white eye. There you are, you. You devil, you, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. You got her all going, huh? Good looking and well built. Yeah, you bring, bring that drink up and you notice your arm, you Christ, you kill her, you, yeah. 155 ring and wet in them days, I couldn't lick my lips, you know. That, that whiskey really brings it in, don't it? You get so drunk some nights you can't remember whether you're a lover or a killer, yeah. You know, you're a little face to make sitting there. Wonder why all the dollies aren't down there, huh? You got that. $30 smiling Frankie Gordon suit on you. Got 50 cents worth of whiskey spilled all down in front of you there. Got a little chili on your tie. You got a snuff dipper that's running down the side there, you know. And I smell bad and I can't talk. And yet it's one of the most romantic periods of my life sitting there. <laughs> if I gotta go to the men's room, it's all over, isn't it? The big kludge out in the middle of the floor out there. Or you get into one of them men's rooms and it's one of them pay toilets. <laughs> I used to think pay toilets were plots against alcoholics. You know, you, you never have the right change. You get in there and you can't get in the damn thing, you know. And you still gotta go, so you look around and nobody's there, you gotta slide under the door. And that's degrading for a high roller, you know. Going in under the door. I'm sure there's some old door sliders here tonight. Takes the press right out of your suit going in. It's hell coming out, too, I'll tell you that, you know. You're drawing an audience. Here he comes, that a boy, yeah. <laughs> and the old of the evening is you wander around out there in the parking lot looking for your car, you know. Where's my car? How can you lose a car? Look, then I want to tell him. It's easy. Yeah, really. You just get a little drunk out there and lose him. And I think one of the 
highlights of the alcoholic's life. The ultimate is the night that he finds his car. You're, it's kind of like a spiritual experience. You're, you're walking down the street and there it is, you know, I got my car. It hasn't been impounded there. I love your car. God, you open the door and you get in and go to bed in there. And you know, a lot of car sleepers in AA. You see a guy walk into his first meeting, he's coming like that, he's a car sleeper, no question about it. <clears throat> Had his head screwed up under the armrest all night. You know. Had the door handle stuck in his ear. Wake up in the middle of the night, you're sick, and you think your window's down, it's up. You know, ooh, that rat. <laughs> Knock the hell out of your head, throw up in your lap, and you sit there and <clears throat> say to yourself, you know, drinking's fun. God love it. <laughs> bad whiskey. L.A.'s got a lot of bad whiskey these days. I gotta get the hell out. I gotta get back down to Big Spring, Texas. I had good whiskey in Big Spring, and they loved me down there. Or was it El Paso where they loved me and had good whiskey? Or Dallas or Fort Worth or Seattle or Moses Lake, Washington or Albuquerque or Tucson. Or It was always going to be different once I got back down there wherever there was, and it surely was. It was different. It was worse. It never got any better. It kept getting worse. But I trudged down that road thinking somewhere, someday, it's going to change. <clears throat> year after year, why, little by little, the booze got every loving thing I had that meant anything to me. <clears throat> year after year, I'd come on in to the house and go through the, the routine of, of <clears throat> the redhead to stand there and promising her the world, saying, baby, give me a break, you know. Don't throw me out. I got a hell of a deal. I'm, I'm going out to see that priest she was telling me about. I'm going to take another pledge, and I'm, I'm going to do these things. A schemer. And year after year we'd scheme, and year after year I'd stand there, and, and she'd say, you're drunk again. And, and I'd say, who, me? And she'd say, yeah, you. And I'd say, do you know who you're talking to? You know, we had a hell of a dialogue in that house. And then she'd mimic me as only them Irish can do it. You know, do I know who I'm talking to? You know? I'd say, you shut that Irish mouth or I'm getting out of here, boy. And I, I mean it this time. I'm never coming back. This happens sometimes when you have your best friend with you. Your new business partner you met at the bar last night. You invited him home. The reason he's coming home with me is hell, he don't want to go home alone either. You know, scared to death You know, he's standing there, I go, you embarrassed me in front of my best friend. And I couldn't think of his name, you know. Now, you don't apologize, I'm going, she so go down and throw my clothes out. And then you pick up the clothes and you pack them out to the car. The, the clothes packing Alki, he's a joy to the neighborhood. You, you get tired of watching the telly, watch the Alki, there he goes, you know. Marvelous. <clears throat> well, even this changed, you see. I went home one day and she wasn't even sore at me. No, she just said, Norm, you're a drunken bum. I can't tolerate it any longer. I'm neurotic because of you. The kids are neurotic because of you. You know, and night after night, we wonder how you're coming in. You're going to bust up the house tonight? You're going to stand there with that gun when night goes off, somebody dies in the house? <clears throat> I've spent a lifetime looking through the front room window waiting to see your car come home. And every time it doesn't come in, why, you age me a little more. And every time I hear a siren run, I think, my God, the police got you. Or this time they find you dead in the street. No, I mean, you're not coming home anymore. Do so. I can't go through it any longer. You drug us down the gutter as deep as you're going to get us. I call an attorney. I've asked for separate maintenance. There's a restraining order against you. You don't live here. Don't send any money. You won't get that far ahead. Just get the hell out of our lives. I'll always love you. But you tore out all the feeling. I got no feeling for you, one way or another. And so you trudge out to your car and one more thing is gone. And you say to yourself as you drive away, why me? 
And you know and I know. You drink enough booze long enough and hard enough, and it's just got to work out that way. Sure, there's isolated cases of people put up with that crap for 30 years, always hoping that jerk's going to straighten out. You know, 30 years they watch him flop in and out of the house. 30 years of picking up the pieces. 30 years of lying for him. 30 years of listening to them promises you can't cut. Hell, I wouldn't put up with it 30 days, let alone 30 years, but it does happen out there. God gives him a lot of strength, he does. <clears throat> it's kind of a left-handed thing he hands down to him. To the new people, oh, don't get me wrong, this isn't something we can guarantee to you. And <clears throat> The only thing we have here to offer is sobriety and a way of life. And if you're a ditch digger, you're going to be a better ditch digger. We don't guarantee you're going to make a ton of scratch, drive a big iron, or live in the big house in the hill, and a woman's calling you in, or man, whatever the case may be. Now, we say you're going to be better what you're doing, my friend. Sobriety, a way of life. That's what we have to offer. And just maybe, maybe you get the fringe benefit. Maybe you get back together. It's a miracle. It's a miracle when a man and his woman walk through the door and they're still together at their first meeting. That's a miracle. You look at that guy, he's sick and hung out. You look at her, she's sick too in a different way. Look at her eyes. There's a story there. The story says, yeah, this jerk's tried everything in the world and it won't work. Hell, this isn't going to work either. Well, you see the same couple a couple of months later, and the guy, you know, he's cleaned up and sharped out and looks pretty good, and his eyes are clear. You look at the woman, and, and she's changed, too. And in her eyes is a brand-new story, and the story says, you know something? I've been waiting 20 years for this to happen, and finally it's happened, and today we're happier than we've ever been in our life. And it's made possible through a unique miracle you and I here choose to call Alcoholics Anonymous. To the new people, this isn't something we guarantee, see. <clears throat> if you come to the program to get this, why, that isn't the way it is. If you say to me, well, what brought you to Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, I don't know. An aggregate total of a lot of things, I'm sure. The jails, getting beat up, the family, uh, getting the pressure from the job, having the heat on all over town, a whole lot of money, maybe all of it. If I had to isolate one thing that brought me in, I'd say maybe the day I recognized I'd lost the sweetest thing I ever owned, my self-respect. The day that I knew that guy walked into my life, he says, Norm, you've abused the privilege of voting. He took it away. He took away my self-respect. The day that I had that feeling, that pain inside, that it was a regret I couldn't tolerate any longer. Maybe that was the psychological second of my life when I was totally sick and tired of being sick and tired and tired of hurting myself, and I, and I wanted to find some other better way. If I had to bring it down to one isolation, one, one thing, I'd say, the day I knew that nothing's going for me in here, that I've got no self-respect, that I lost the sweetest thing I ever owned, that it's a commodity out there, in a sense, but you can't buy it. You don't check it out of the supermarket, no. It's something you earn. And how fortunate are we of Alcoholics Anonymous? The second time around, twice in one lifetime, you have the opportunity to regain your self-respect and in turn be respected by people. I think that day, or I know that day up to and including this afternoon and this evening, is it came to me in February of 1954. In February of 54, I went on a hell of a tear and I got up off of the floor and I... I was pretty sick. I walked in, I picked up the telephone, I called the central office in Los Angeles, and I talked to a guy, and his name was Johnny Carroll. And I'm sure Johnny Carroll doesn't mind me breaking his anonymity. Johnny Carroll was one of the fine people of AA. And the reason he was, he learned early in his AA life to keep what I have, I gotta give it away. And God knows he gave a lot of it away. He not only worked the central offices, but on the old Alhambra group, you went down there on a Thursday night, and you walked up the stairs, the old women's club, and the top of the stairs there was sitting Johnny Carroll. <clears throat> Wait and see new guys coming in, and he'd shake your hand, he'd take you in, he'd pour you a cup of coffee, and, and he'd tell you, you know, to have a lot of patience and <clears throat> keep coming back and keep an open mind. And he says, You're young, and you're impatient as hell, and you want to do it all now. But he said, You want to remember something. You want to remember that it took you 15 years, one day at a time, to get yourself down there to the bottom of the chute. And it's going to take you 15 years, one day at a time, to get yourself back out. 
He says, you're probably going to get out of it about the way you got into it. Now, maybe you get lucky and cut it in eight or nine years, but don't count on it. He said, have patience, go to a lot of speedings. It will get better each and every year as you trudge down this road. That's the guy I talked to. <clears throat> he passed away after been sober maybe a year and a half or two. He gave me some phone numbers that day and said, start calling these guys, and pretty soon you get a hold of somebody, and I'll be out to see you. And if you don't get anybody, call me back and give you some more numbers. Well, the second guy I called, he was there, and his name was Norman. He came out to see me. Hell of a controversial man, this guy. He was a hell of a talker in AA, too. He talked all over the country, and quite a guy. <clears throat> but he, there was only one way to, to work the program, and the, that was his way. You did it this way, and if you didn't do it this way, then it wouldn't work. Now, he was a, a fine man and the greatest sponsor in the world because he was my sponsor. Even though I didn't like him, you know, that day he came out to see me and he sat there and talked to me. I got a detestity. He sat there and he kept going, you know, you got to remember, son, you got to go to any length to get this program. Any length to get it. He and his flaky friends and that dumb cop he ran around with, they all talked the same way, any length to get it, you know. And it just irritated the hell out of me. And he would ask you a question and then he would answer it. You know, he'd say, <coughs> You didn't like get the booze, didn't you? Yes, you did. I know you did, you know. <laughs> well, you got two self-centered people sitting there. You know what's happening. And boy, you know, I just don't like this thing. And I don't like the way he's talking to me. And the only thing I liked about him is when he said, if I can make it, you can. And I thought, ain't that the truth? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that rotten old man can make it. Anybody can make it out there. No question about it. He said, you know, that I don't pick guys up and take them to meetings. He says, it's a softer, easier way. If you want to come and get it. If you've got a car, drive. If you've got a car, you're probably not ready yet. But we take a chance on guys from time to time with cars, so get in your car and come on down. And I'll be down at the Temple City meeting, and I'll be down there in the parking lot. And I'll meet you at three meetings, and after three meetings, you can make the decision whether you want it or you don't want it. So I got in my car, and then I drove down to that meeting, and I was hoping he'd be in the parking lot, and I would crash him on my car, and that's what I do. Yeah. Well, I got down there and hell forgot I hated him. You know, there he was. He was laughing. And he come up and he slapped me on the back and he took me on in. The old Temple City group. We used to meet down in Rosemead in those days. The Temple City group today meets in Arcadia. I just throw that out. If you're coming to my side of town looking for Temple City Sunday night, don't go to Temple City. It never met in Temple City. Never. It's kind of weird. Uh, I know when I was new, I asked the guy, you know, why don't you change the name of the group? Uh, what you trying to do? Run this outfit, you know? Yeah. You only do that one time, that's all. We used to meet in that Legion Hall down there. Liquor store in the Legion Hall in the cemetery. And the favorite experience of the group was, if you get by here and stop here, you won't make it over there. You know, they, they show all the new guys a cemetery out there. And they, they thought it was very funny. Ah, uh, that's funny, you're going to die if you keep drinking. Well, you know, alcoholics, after they get sober, you get a very warm sense of humor. They... They laugh about all these oddball things. Uh, I was taken into the group. <clears throat> this is a wealthy group, incidentally. We had so much money in the group in those days, we had donuts before and after the meeting. It was just kind of heard, unheard of. And they always bought three or four red jelly donuts and saved those for new guys, you know. And they see a new guy all green and hung out, and he's coming in, and the red jelly donut committee would kind of slide up on him and say, glad to have you. How would you like red jelly donut right there, you know? <laughs> if you ever look at a red jelly donut, would you go to Terrible. And then they all laughed. You know, he was funnier than the guy last week, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> but I was amazed how they all stood around, you know. We used to stand around before the meeting and screw up six, seven guys, and, and all of them talking at the same time. 
and they're all talking about different things. I, I couldn't, you know, it's hard to understand. They stand there and everybody's talking about all these different things and you're trying to, you know, keep up with the conversation and, and about the time the, the guy gets the punchline of the story, why another guy comes in, you know, interrupts him right there, you know, and you, he finishes what he's going to say and he says, sorry, did I interrupt you? And he's gone, you know. And you spend months in AA waiting to hear the ends of these stories that are going around. And you never get to hear anything uh, at the end of it. And when you're new, you hear that keep coming back, and you're sure that's why. If you, <laughs> you're sure that it isn't really, and you know it, and I know it. But you know, Alcoholics Anonymous in the beginning is a very confusing thing. What the hell are these guys talking about? They're talking about things I've been hiding all my life. You know, going to jail and, and divorces and all. You know, I didn't talk about any of those things. And this isn't enough. No, the meeting begins and the guy stands up in front of the group and begins to tell everybody what a jackass he is, you know. And he talks about being beat up and going to jail. And they uh, laugh and the more he gets beat up, the more he goes to jail, the more they laugh. Like, you know. And the uh, guy there, he, he talks about drinking this Jamaica ginger. He gives him the cheek leg. Cripping up, so I had to put him in a hospital for about two months, and the audience was hysterical. You know, but, you know, if my sponsor was like uh, <clears throat> Maury's wife, Vera, he's a nudger. Uh, I think all sponsors are nudgers. You know, he's sitting there going, Did you hear that? Did you hear that? You know, you, uh, you want to say, I'm not deaf, for Christ's sake. Yes, I heard it. But I don't know what he's talking about, you know. I really didn't know what he was talking about. I had been around a little bit, but I hadn't really been around. I thought, Hell, I can't make it in AA. How can I? I've, been in 25 jails and drank a little vitalis. You know, I really haven't been out there. And so you get to thinking, well, maybe I get some more time. But this talker and all the talkers I ever heard in the early years always made it a point to qualify the statement by saying, it don't make any difference what you drank or where you drank it or how old you are. And it's what it's doing to you. And if it's tearing up any part of your life, you don't have to go any farther. And I could understand that. Yes, sir. And I could parallel that. And I could identify. And I could say, you're damn right, buddy. You better believe it, it's tearing the hell out of my life, and I surely don't want to go any farther, and, and you said I didn't have to go any farther, and, and I believed that guy that night. I may not have believed anything else, but I believed him when he said, I didn't have to go any farther than if I didn't want to. I've been looking for that guy all my life, all my adult drinking life, and I never knew it that night. I traveled half the world trying to find him and, and couldn't grab it. I'd even gone home and saw my people, and my people, I you know, they... I thought they had it. They, they tried to give it to me and couldn't grab it. And I saw my woman, and my woman tried to lay it on me, and I couldn't get a hold of it, and the kids come up and says, knock off the booze, and I tried to grab it and couldn't do it. And I saw the priest, and I went to the doctor, and I tried to grab it out there, and it wasn't there. And in February of 54, I sat down in the meeting, and I looked up there, and there it was. There's what I've been looking for all my life. There was sobriety and a way of life. There's a guy that knew all about it. He come off the city street, and I could identify. And he said, it's going good. And I knew it was. Alcoholics Anonymous is a program by example. If you like what you see, you come back here together. What he is speaks so loud, I cannot hear a word he says. If I heard it once, I heard it 50 times. By example is the program. Should that man that night who had been through all those things, and he, he's clean and he's sharp, and his eyes are clear, and he laughs, and he's running threads. Geez, that set of threads probably run him a hundred and a half. I'm thinking, if he didn't get nothing else from AA, didn't he get a set of drapes out of it? Man, that's all right. You know, I'll stick around a little bit and give me a set, too. I am impressed with how he looks, by example. And I didn't know it that night. The only other thing I took out of that meeting was that that guy had been to hell and back, and his woman had divorced him. And his woman had remarried, and his kids hated him. 
And after a period of time, he grabbed and bought the package, and these kids come down to see him. And they learned to like him, and they learned to respect him, and they learned to love him. And if I'd have looked around that night, I'd have seen three or four of these tough AA guys sitting there in that AA meeting, and the tears were in their eyes, and the story was told. They laughed because they were miserable, and they cried because they were happy, and they called it Alcoholics Anonymous. And now maybe this is oversimplification of the program, is my understanding. For how the hell do you clear away the wreckage of your rotten, lousy past? How do you move that crap out? Isn't the beginning of it all the day you learn to laugh a little? You know, there's nothing to laugh about before you get here. And I sat there in those early meetings, and I'm not going to laugh. But one night I'm going, ah, oh, God, no, 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 see that? <laughs> but you start, and boy, when you do, it's like a thousand pounds come off your back. And you, you start to bring out the garbage, and you start to clear it away, and you put yourself out there into a position to, to grab the package out there, to get the whole thing. Yeah. You feel something for somebody else, maybe, huh? Maybe you're sitting in an AA meeting on the birthday like tonight, and, and people stand up, and you get all choked up and emotional over it. And you're not emotional for yourself, but for somebody else. The first time I could ever remember feeling something for somebody and I wanted something in return was when old Frank W. A guy come from my business, the construction business, and he and I did a job together up in the San Joaquin Valley. Heavy equipment operator, one of the rottenest drunks I ever knew in my life. He was so rotten he got 86 out of the Tulare Hotel for life. And man, you really got to be rotten to get 86 out of the Tulare Hotel, you know, for a day, let alone for life. Because <clears throat> the Tulare Hotel's a rotten place to begin with. But <laughs> I'm sitting in an AA meeting and I look up there in South San Gabriel and <clears throat> there's old Frank. And I thought, Jesus, you know, I missed him. And, <clears throat> and there he was. And a woman come out of the door and she's carrying a case, got three candles on me. And he bent down, he blew out the candles, and this big, tough guy, this guy goes 200 pounds, and this big, tough guy is standing there, and, and the tears are just running down his cheeks, and he makes a very profound statement. He said, more in seven seconds than I said in 45 minutes. He said, man, I never had it so good. And I felt myself being choked up, and I felt the tears come to my eyes, and I, and I wanted to leap out of the chair and say, Frank, baby, tell me what it's really like. <clears throat> I'm so happy for you. And maybe that's the first time in my adult life I ever felt anything for anybody and didn't want something in return. Maybe that's the transition. Maybe that's the day I buy the package and I quit taking and I start giving. For I as a person, you see, I'm a taker. I'm a taker of things and a user of people. I'm a loser. Takers are losers, believe me, whether they're on the program or off of it. I know, because I've been out there and, and, and around it, you see, and I've been dabbled out there in that gray area, even after coming to the program. So I know all about the taking. It's the giving is where it is, the giving for the hell of it and want nothing in return, and there's a place for all. For you see, it was given to me that Sunday night. The man said, Norm, you're new. Here it is. I'll give you the program. I'm going to give you your life, Norm. I'm going to give you sobriety and a way of life. That's what I'm going to give you. You didn't buy it. You can't sell it. Not any piece of part. You will go out and, and you will give it to somebody else. And your life is predicated in your sense of well-being and the amount, maybe, that you give away. <clears throat> the reward is insurmountable. That self-feeling good all over. Not something in a material sense, but the sense of well-being that you get from the giving of Alcoholics Anonymous of this program. That feeling good here as you walk down the street and you want to yell at the world, I feel good, and you got the heat on. Still, and you owe some money, but maybe you help the guy out and you 12-step <clears throat> caller. Or you made the coffee, or you went to central service, general service, institution, or there's a place for everybody to, to just give a little of what was given to you, and the return is <clears throat> astronomical. It's so great, I, I can't explain it.
And I love to tell you that every day is a holiday and every meal is a band, but since I've been to the program and the rest of my friends, but that isn't the way it is. It's a growing process and it's a, a growing program. You go through it all. Hell, in that first year, you know, we used to have meetings after the meetings. It was a hell of a deal. Uh, the meetings after the meetings were much better than the meetings. That way you get a lot of in-depth criticism that way, you know. And we, uh, we kind of formed our own clique because there was these other cliques out there. You had to form your clique to be against them. That's the way it worked out. And we would have these meetings after the meetings. And, and we noticed there were a lot of flaky secretaries in the Sangiro Valley. Uh, a lot of bad talkers and leaders. And the only way we were going to get this thing put together was that we would run one of our people for secretary of the largest group in the valley. And the problem was we had to have a year's sobriety. And so uh, we waited. And we got the guy out of this dumb Pollock got a, a year of sobriety in, and so he was the first one to make it. We ran him for secretary of the largest group in the valley. And it's uh, quite a political thing. They say, no politics in the They don't believe it. Uh, they, we imported some guys from El Monte and Baldwin Park on election night, and oh, our friend was, <clears throat> man, he was a landslide. He became secretary of this leading group. And two weeks later, he joined the other cliques. <laughs> yeah. you see you see uh, a lot of people in AA don't you and the only clicking I ever found is a clicking in my head you see <clears throat> these people come from all walks of life there's some people that, uh, <clears throat> that I wouldn't do any drinking with and they wouldn't do any drinking with me obviously and there's some people I won't share all of my sobriety with them and they're not going to share all theirs with me but you know there's not a man or a woman in this program would dislike me so bad he'd like to see me take a drink but if I ever called him and said, Charlie, they come down to see me, he'd be there. Now, he may disagree with all the things I stand for, with my business life, my AA life, my personal life, but would I ask for help? He'd be there. And that's got to be a hell of a deal. That's got to be the best deal that I ever had in my life. <clears throat> These are the things that I've learned as I've walked down the road and I've made the transitions and, and I've boarded the hardships. 1962 and eight years sober and the worst year I ever had. Financially, I was in the worst shape in my life in 62. Eight years sober. The whole thing come down on me. Oh, God. And I'd go to meetings, and I would feel worse. And every two or three weeks, I'd have an honest desire to take a drink. And I'm down in Miami on business, and I'm down at uh, Miami Springs Villa. And I walk out of there, and I walk down to a joint that was about a mile away, and I walked in, and I had no business being in there. I was in the drinking world. And I sat down on the bar stool, and the guy says, what do you have? And I says, give me a double. And he put it out in front of me. And I turned around and I walked out. And one more time, the angel on my shoulder was still there. <clears throat> and another hurdle is jumped. And maybe I remembered and maybe I took myself back. And I said, it was tough and it's going tough today, but Norm, remember 46. Remember 46 and how tough it was when you stood there in front of that judge and he, and he nailed you down. If you think it's tough now, buddy, remember that humility you experienced then. And so another hurdle is crossed. <clears throat> and then lo and behold, before the year is out, well, I have a phone call and I have to return to the coast and I, I have to go down to St. Luke's Hospital and I'm met by the doctor and he says, and this is what has happened. And I had to call him a bad name, and I, and I had to say, why did you let it happen, for Christ's sake? And I stood out there one more time, and I cried the poor mouth about what I didn't get, or what he asked me to carry. And I knew full well inside that the old shooter upstairs, he's a kind man, and he, he never gives you more than what you can pack. He gives the big crosses to the big horses and the small ones to guys named Norm. And if you think it's going tough, why, take a minute out of your busy day, Norm. And look down the street, and what do you see? I see a man down there, and he carries a load ten times the size of mine. And the difference between he and I is that he carries his with great dignity. He doesn't find it necessary to cry the poor mouth about what he didn't get. He took a moment out, and he says, thanks. 
Thanks, old friend, for what you gave me. And would you come to see me again? I said, God, give me the strength. If you're going to bring the package down and you're going to iron me out, give me the strength to stand and be counted. Give me the strength to say thank you so very much for the 21 years and six months that you let me walk down the sunny side of the street. That if I don't get any more than that, you see, I'm overpaid. Because I know guys that never saw 21 days. I know guys who walk the street of booze and fantasy, busted dreams and broken hearts, tears by the bucketful, joints, jails, traps. They died in the rottenest places you've ever seen. They never saw what I had seen. They never woke up in the morning and made the decision which way they're going to live. People made decisions for them all their life. When you're drinking and you're drugging, you're alcoholic out there and you're coming from behind, the world makes the decisions for you. They tell you what you're going to do. You come to scratch, buddy, or you get the hell out of here. And my woman says, you know, knock off the booze and get out. And the bank says, get the money. We get your car. And the boss says, the next time we catch you drinking on the job, you're through. Get the hell out of my office. I want to tear his guts out. I wanted to cut him up, but I didn't have the nerve. I couldn't do it. I'm coming from behind. i got to have the job. i got to have the money. And so I ate it out there, but not today. No, not today, you see. Not today. I got up this morning, and I selected the way that I'll live. 90% of it. I will pick it. I know full well I don't have to justify my existence out there to anybody. <clears throat> I don't have to stand and be counted like I used to, no. And I don't have to compromise my life. Not if I don't want to. I can go on out out there on that city street and I can perform a function and I can be part of that race and a competitor and I can feel respect for myself and in turn be respected by people and I can talk to folks and I can look them in the eye and they not hang my head and I can pick up my piece of the action out there if this is necessary and I can finish that day and get into a car and drive home to a house where I live and be met at the door by a woman, and she'll be my woman, and she'll be redheaded, and, and she'll be Irish, and she'll be glad I'm coming in. And she called me up one day, and she says, there's a hell of a rumor in L.A. We understand you ain't drinking. Everybody says you smell different, you act different, I want to see you, you know. So I, I went home to see her, and I've been going, ever, going in ever since. And I'm respected there, and nobody cried at my house today because her old man was drunk. I heard a kid of mine scream at me for years for me not to hit their mother. Watch them go from small ones into big ones. Set them out there to them schools out there and watch them get educated. Had a couple of went to the professions. I've taken daughters downtown and I've bought them their first pair of high-heeled shoes and, and prom dresses. I've seen them move from chickens into women. I felt the respect in their eyes because I'm their old man. <clears throat> Taking daughters down aisles and giving the jackasses they've married. <laughs> church and 400 are sitting there and, and see my hey buddies out there, 60, 70 of them, you know, all sitting out there on a Saturday afternoon and they're clean and they're sharp and, and they're smiling and they're crying and, and I'm crying a little too for the feeling we have for each other. That thing that you can't put your hand on, just the feeling that one drunk has for another because we're clean, you see, and the words come out and he doesn't say anything, he just says, I see you, Norm, Jesus, you look well. Too bad the rest of the people here in this church don't know who you are, Norm, and where you came from, and what it took to bring you here. And you want to say, yeah, too bad, Fred, too bad, Charlie, too bad they don't know all our friends, too bad they don't, they don't know the Morris and the Franks and the rest. Too bad that these things aren't available to all of you. And these are the things that I wanted to tell some friends of mine so many years ago that I could never put in words, and I could never really find the adequate words to explain exactly how I feel about what I found. I can only say that every loving thing I've got today is because of this program. And it's been a hell of a walk from the L.A. County Jail to the point that I stand today. 
And but for the grace of God and Alcoholics Anonymous and friends like you folks, I could have missed it all. Thanks a man. God bless you. Norm Elfie.
And I didn't hear him say, I'm sure, but I'm sure he said it. He said, I've been making it one day at a time. So for the benefit of the new people that are here tonight, I've been cutting it out there one day at a time. I learned a while ago that if you take care of the day, the week will take care of itself and well the year and well the month and so on. Before you know it, by 19 years have run by, and it is, not to repeat myself, but it was, just like yesterday that I sat at that meeting and wondered why it was that I was alcoholic. I come from a family heavy drinkers. They let everybody buy family drinks. And we're Irish and Italian. That means, number one, you're not overly intelligent, but it means you know a little bit about that booze, you know. We know, we know how to make booze and drink booze, and my people are still making it and drinking it, I should not be the only alcoholic. And I sat there wondering why it is that I've been selected to carry the cross of the rotten family when I'm the best in the family. There wasn't any question about that, you see. And all of these things, you know, are running through your mind. You, know, you read a little literature, you read the book, you talk to a few guys about this problem as to why or why not you're alcoholic. And I come to find out after going through this, a, a big giant decision. I'm alcoholic because I, I drank too much whiskey. That's the reason I'm alcoholic. You see, my case is really not that complicated. I had a few other things going for me. I'm a rationalizer, a justifier, a compromiser, and I got a rotten attitude. And man, you don't need much more than that. <laughs> the outlook on living as far back as I can remember. I traveled half the world in half my life. I made a complete ass of myself out there. I spent money I didn't have, by things I didn't need, trying to impress people I didn't like. And that's the story of my life. I never sit out, you see. Because I was run all over the hill trying to be all things to all people. I never knew what I wanted to be. I thought out there for years I was a general manager of the universe. My God, what a hell of a responsibility that is. No wonder I drank so much. I got all them things to manage out there. I got all them castles to build and all them corporations to support. And it's kind of a letdown, isn't it? When you walk into AA and you find out you're no longer the general manager, you're only a drunk, you know. Well, it's, it's all right. It works both ways. It's kind of a gratifying experience to find out that uh, you're only a drunk and this is what you are. And by so doing, you're able to grab and buy the package of AA. And when you do, you come to find out that all you ever wanted to be in your whole life, Norm, is be able to spend the day or find a way that you can spend the day out there to be in yourself. And that's what the program has brought me. It's brought me sobriety and many other things, but above all, it's shown me a way where, a way where I can spend a day, and all I've got to be is me. And I can take that, and I can take it out on the city street, and I can spend a day on the city street where I don't have to compromise my life nor justify my existence. I can spend a day there and just be a day, and it's a hell of a deal. It's one of the finest things I've found, and I think that no alcoholic should be without it. You know, when you come to the program, as the said, they sent you straight right away. When you walk in through the doors, what they say, man, don't impress us here in anybody. We have been impressed by experts and alcoholics anonymous. Just come on in and be yourself. That's all you got to be. But if you got an attitude like I have and a personality that's somewhere down the road, well, you got to lay a little on a guy. And one night, I thought I'd put a little on this guy, you know. And I mentioned to him, I said, man, you know I've been in jail about 25 times. And he said, the hell you have. I did that in a year. He said, I'm my dear friend. Said. No matter where you've been, somebody got there long before you did. And no matter what booze or how much you drank, you're going to run across people that drank more than you thought was Bill. So if you're new, come on in and grab the packages here. Take it out on that city street tomorrow and spend the day being yourself. And it's a hell of an experience. As I said, no alcoholic should be without. If I'm here this evening, I'd like to talk a little bit about what I was like, what happened, and what I'm trying to be like today. <clears throat> Not that I'm going to impress you with the amount of booze I consume, but when a man comes to me and he says, Norm, how does AA work? Well, AA works because of, number one, because of the AA book. That's the way it works, the Alcoholics Anonymous book. And they didn't mismatch around with it when I come in. I don't mean to sound like an old timer or anything like that. But when I come in, they didn't say, well, you better buy a book. They said, man, you better spend three fifty and buy a book, and if you don't buy a book, you're going to get drunk. That's the way it is. Now, you went and bought the damn book. Because if you wanted to stay sober, that's the way it was. 
Well, the bush in those days were calculated red. Hell, they had that cover, you know, it was red, yellow, and black. You can see it were two blocks, so when you bought it, you put it on your coat, you went out. Because <laughs> this is the paradox of the alcoholic. He, he, he don't want anybody to know he's trying to do something about his life. You don't know. I know that. It's fine if they see you laying drunk in the middle of the street. That's fine. You have no problem there. But good God. Don't let them think that you're going to do something about that. No. So you buy the answer. You buy the book. And you hide it. And you run to your car. There you go. You see. Now, uh, number one, this is the way that the program works to the new people and through the AA book. No question. Secondly, it's because it's one drunk talking to another drunk to two, you stay sober. What a couple of drunks talk about when they get out there. They talk about all the hack and the hustle they had out there in the street. They talk about coming on the program and find a better way to operate. They talk about some things that they use to stay sober over a period of time. So tonight, if I may, I'd like to tell a little bit about a few things that have happened to me, past, present, future, or future we hope, and today in specific. Uh, my life, as you can readily understand, I had a lot of problems. I'm a guy out there trying to impress the human race about all of these things. I got an attitude problem. I can sum it up by saying, I'd be the guy you'd find out here today. You know, it's 100 and you got 90 degrees of humidity, and I'm driving around town with all the windows rolled up in my car because I want everybody to believe I've got an air conditioner, you see. <laughs> the story of my life, I've always got to impress them with that sense of well-being out there. Well, you know me, today when I'm riding around town in L.A. and I see these guys with the windows rolled up in the car, you know what I think? Does he or doesn't he? <laughs> so with this kind of attitude, you know, you can understand I'm a guy that's going to have a lot of trouble out there, and I did. I started going to jail in the late 30s, not for drinking in the beginning, but for stealing in the beginning. I happen to be a thief by trade. I'm an alcoholic by absorption. I opened up the midnight auto supply out there in the San Gabriel Valley. And when that consisted of the beginning, we started out popping hubcaps. It kind of was a fun thing, and we learned you could make a little money out of it. So we branched the program out, and we went from hubcaps to car accessories, and then it got to be such a job to gather up all that crap we stole the whole car, you know. And the thing went from there on out. I was considered one of the finest car thieves that ever came out of the San Gabriel Valley. And that was a pretty good deal in the late 30s. You know, you had to move to get ranked up there in the top ten. We had some fair hookers out there, you know. You had to really move. So... I'm a guy with a large ego, and i got to have it satisfied, and this was a satisfaction. I could go on and talk about this all night. You wouldn't understand it, you know. If you've never laid on the floorboards of a man's car, and you're getting his radio out, for example. If your buddy's out there on the street, just got on the guy's coming out the door. you got about three minutes. You get that instantaneous exhilaration. God, you just kind of shake all over, and the sweat runs, and you die, and you live. And that was me. The synthetic existence out there, the fantasy land. Hell, Disney's late. I've lived in that fantasy land all my life. You know, I'm the dreamer out there, and I was dreaming, and that was part of me and part of life. Eventually, I was arrested. I stood in front of a judge. I was told by the judge I was going to the Whittier Reformatory for the following seven years. Through the efforts of people and some circumstances and breaks or whatever you want to call it, being born and raised in L.A., being Irish and Italian, I'm sure it has something to do with it. Something got worked out, and before you know it, I'm back on the street. And the time is, I'm put on probation in this community. Well, alcohol hasn't come into my life yet, but the attitude has. I got the attitude. I'm standing out there reacting to life and to living. I never bought living on living terms. I want that thing. You know, I want it my way, and that's the way it's going to be. And I'll bend and twist and turn it so it's going to be that way. Well, this, everything is set. Now, booze is the next step. Alcohol came into my life on Easter week, 1940. And Easter week in L.A. is a big time. Easter week, 1940, Balboa Beach, the Rendezvous Ballroom, Stan Kenton, and Padre Beer. And it was a hell of a deal right for the start. We drink that booze, that beer, and you get a little buzzy as you went into the dance, and you had a pretty good time. And you acted four times drunker than what you were, and I liked it. I liked the effects of the feeling. I'm not alcoholic from the beginning. A lot of people feel they were alcoholic from the initial, I'm sure. In your particular case, this is true. This is fact. 
But I'm not looking for the answer to live in McCoy whiskey yet. One too many and a thousand are enough. No, no. So I don't continue on from then and want to drink each and every day. I kind of worked at it. I moved out of that Padre beer down to that rainy rail, that old green death. And from there I went on out to that Ten High Whiskey. And when I got to that Ten High Whiskey, I found the greatest thing made since money and girls. Because that whiskey gets you there quicker. And I've been in a hurry all my life. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to be there in a little while. I want to get there now. And getting there is there. That's the plateau. The alcoholic drink is up to, isn't it? Well, you know, the more you drink, the better you feel, and the better you feel, the better the buzz you got on. And pretty soon, the more you drink, and you're just, you reach the ultimate, the plateau, and you're buzzy all over, you know. God, you sit there with that total buzz on, thinking, man, if I could hold that forever. And I'll order one more, just to stay even. Down the chute to go, you know. When man there for a while, you know, you got that buzz on and you're all things to all people. You're good looking, well built, intellectual, and wealthy, and you got the job done in two hours with that whiskey. That's the best deal I ever had. A friend of mine out there on the coast, he explains it very well. He's up north now, but he tells it. He said there's a period of time in there when you're buzzy and you feel the good, and if you're going to do anything, you better do it then, because that's all the time you got. Yeah. An hour and a half before that, you're too sick, and after it, you're too drunk, man. So you better get her down there. <laughs> It's sure the truth. You sit there with that buzz on this ship. Uh, you're all things to all people. And that's what the whiskey did. That old Ten High was a little rough going down. You had to train harder, I think, on Ten High and some of that other stuff. But don't get me wrong. I drank good whiskey in my day. But I, frankly, after four or five drinks, how could you tell the difference? Good whiskey, cheap whiskey, bad, didn't make any difference. As long as it was whiskey, that was the only important thing. Well, the whiskey was important. The Ten High economically, hell, you never met a better buy in your life. I think that juice is going for about six, five, six, five in them days. Still, it's, how are you going to go wrong? And you felt every loving drop going down. That's ten high. <laughs> Got it tore, going, and it's tearing, coming up again. You remember? Hey, you remember. How it'll run out your nose, and it makes your eyes water. Yeah. And then one of your friends goes, ain't that good? Yeah. <laughs> it's the good you can't breathe. It's the good, you know. Yeah. You get one off, you know, under the front seat. He's about 105 and chill it back. God, the good old days. Well, that was the beginning of, the, of maybe the problems. Maybe, maybe I'm starting to move over this invisible line they talk about in AA to the compulsive area. My drink, no. I do know that I got the jam that's all whiskey drinking started up in the state of Oregon. The reason I was there, a little trouble in L.A. And I had to, I was, I had to leave before I got picked up and went back to jail. And then I got in trouble when I was up there in the state of Oregon. I was dangling again in the tar business. And the folks said, you go to jail or get the hell out of the city. So I left. Uh, years ago, there was a man in my part of town and he told my life story. He stood up there in front of the group and he said, if it was too big to carry, I laid down beside it and claimed it. <laughs> January of 1942, I enlisted in the United States Navy. Not because I was over patriotic, but I had the heat on. I had to get the heat off. I got the heat on at two states that the probation department gave me a deal. They said go to jail and go to service. So I went to service. You know, there's not much of a deal there. I always selected the United States Navy. I find that this was another one of my bad decisions. Uh, I went into the United States Navy, and all the enemies I had in LA joined the Navy the same day. You know, they were there waiting for me. They started to give me a a lot of problems, a lot of trouble, telling me things I was going to have to do and what I couldn't do. And I started to have more trouble. In the four-year period I was in, there were three court-martials. There was a deck, a summary, a general. 
There was 11 and a half months in the Navy prison up there on the top of Goat Island off of General Court Marshal. There were 60, 70 days in solitary confinement. There were 10, 12 captains mass. There were some other miscellaneous things, but they're not really important. The important thing is that I've crossed the line. I'm now over where I can't live with it and I can't live without it and I don't want to. My whole life now revolves around booze. I can't go into a place and sit down and serve alcoholic beverages. And have three or four, I want to get up and leave. So if I have three or four, I want to stay. And I'll go to any length to stay. Any length to be able to stay and to continue to drink. Many times I couldn't, many times I had to leave. But I didn't want to. And so the invisible line I had crossed. I'm discharged in Christmas Eve of 1945. And I came back to Los Angeles in 46. And God moves in strange and mysterious ways, Tony. And you know it and I know it. And no matter what you do or you don't do, that's the way the deal is going to work out anyway. And 1946 is one of those years. I wish I really had the, the background, the education, the understanding, the vocabulary to explain it. I don't. I only know that the dangerous things happen in my life. But no matter how I try to move it around, that this is the way it works out. And in 1946 was a bad year. I got picked up five times. I got two 502s, which are drunk driving. I got two plain drunk and then a 501 felony drunk driving hit and run bodily injury and foul. And it all happened within a period of five or six months in the same state. You know, every alky's got a city car fix on him. Mine happens to be a rotten town over here called Pasadena. God, I I don't know why I went back to drink. I did time and time. It was like a maggot that'd bring me back in, you know. And I'd find myself in there drinking whatever I did. I got in trouble. I used to think I had an alarm set that went around the city limits. And every time I crossed over, it went off. I said, get it. He said, Well, the fourth pickup this year, I stand in front of the judge, a judge that I knew as well as my father. This judge and I, hell, we grew up together, I know, for so long. I knew him when he was shagging delinquents. That was me. I knew him when he was on a police court bench, looking at Josh, that's me. He's a smart operator, he got up on a spear court bench, and I'm no meathead, you know. I'm with him again, there you are, yeah. <laughs> So, one thing I knew about this guy was he'd never lied to me. He'd say 60, 90, whatever it was, it always done it. <laughs> yeah. He looked down at me that day, he says, a year, in the city jail, suspended, three years probation. You come back to this town, I hear about you in a place that serves itself alcoholic beverages, you go to camp for a year. Or to jail? For a year. I get the hell out of my card room. And I walked out. And I'm a half-smart alky like all alkies are. Here I thought, boy, that guy. I ain't coming back to the city. No, no, I'm going to stay out. I'm not going to drink. I'm going to drink in these other places out there in the perimeter. And I did. For about two and a half months. Yeah, and it got so good. You know, I couldn't stand it. You know what prosperity does to an alcoholic? Sure. I'm 75 miles away one evening. <clears throat> I'm drinking with a couple of guys. And I committed the cardinal sin. While I was drinking, I began to think. That's a bad deal. <laughs> You should either drink or think. You should never get them both going at the same time. I got to thinking about that rotten judge in that lousy town. And that's a free country, and God knows I'm a veteran. Well, the big rationalization. Well, what's left? I got my car, go 75 miles back to the city. Went down to a joint and drank up the booze and closed the place. Got out, got my car. I went down one of the main drags in the wee hours of the morning. The car pulled in front of me. I hit it and ran to the scene of the accident. But for the grace of God, I wish that the damn fools and drunks. Why, poor folks didn't die in the city street that night. A matter of inches and seconds. That's what alcoholism is all about, isn't it? Seconds and inches. Yeah, that much. The snap of the finger. I hit that car broadside at the rate of speed I was traveling while all the poor folks would have died. The weather hit in the back end. It spun in the street and some people were injured, but not as bad as it could have been, you see. I was picked up three blocks away. I was hauled down and put in a felony tank. I went down for the judge in the morning. He looked at me and I looked at him and he said, get him the hell out of here. He is a disgrace to the city and to himself. And he said, son, drink is your problem. And if you don't knock off the booze, are you going to ruin your life? And I have heard this maybe a half a dozen times before that by ship captains and my people and my friends. But I refuse to believe it because I know I'm a victim of unusual circumstances. It's not me, it's a rotten people. Once I get the people paid, I'll be all right. And so I went out and I went to the city jail to do the time. 
But in the city jail, as I mentioned, got those in shade in the period rain. 150 or 200 guys doing time. Out of 150 or 200, one guy gets out of the bucket to go to AA meetings once a week. Oh, guess who my cell partner is? That's right. This fanatic to go to these AA meetings once a week. That's who I share the cell. He get out of the can once a week with these meetings. He would come back and he would be trying to talk to somebody about it. Well, you have a large audience in the jail cell, you see. So I would sit there, and once a week I'd go through all this balderdash with him. And finally he got so ridiculous, he wanted me to go to a meeting with him. And I told him, I said, Solomon, I ain't got a drinking problem, I got a people problem out there, that's it. I'm too young to be an alcoholic. I hear cases to everybody, you're 36. The hell's the guy got when he's 36? You know, you're over the hills, the backside. Might as well quit drinking too. You and your brothers are a bunch of lousy drunks, so you ought to knock it off. You ought to quit, you ought to do what you got to do, but you're not saying leave me alone. And I went out there and I went on my merry way. But he didn't know and I didn't know. But the old shooter upstairs, he don't know about that. Do you know? He plants the seed. Eight and a half years later, I pick up a telephone. I'm looking for an outfit called A and a guy named Sully. I found the program, but I never found Sully. I looked for him for a period of time. And after five or six years, I learned that he'd gone to Camarillo with a wet head, wet brain. But after three years of sobriety, this guy went back to drinking. That's good. He couldn't stand it. He thought he'd try one more time and he couldn't quit. And they locked him up up there. He said he'd be up there forever. And so you kind of phase it out, don't you? You kind of give up on the guy. And you go back to Mary Way. And about two and a half years ago, maybe three at the outside, there was a meeting on the other side of town. And when the meeting was over, the guy came up and he says, what's this guy's name you're talking about? His first name. And I told him, he said, Christ, that's my brother. I said, the hell with this. Where is he? And he says, Norm, you're going to find it tough to believe that he's on the street now. And he has been for, for quite a while. And he's, he's going to make it, I think. But he, he needs some AA contact. And let the three of us get together. And we'll get to a meeting. I said, fine, let's do it right after the holidays. And he says, good. And after the holidays, this brother, this vector, dropped dead from a heart attack, and we didn't get together. And I still didn't know where my friend was, except he was there somewhere. And once again, why, you kind of push it in the backside. And last December, or a year ago, I was in a meeting the other side of town again, and I looked down in the front row, and the front row was sitting there with a guy named Sully that I shared to sell with some 27 years ago. And when the meeting was over with, I had the opportunity to sit there and say, buddy, how's it going? And he said, God, it's going great. I got in nine weeks. He said, I just got out of the L.A. County Hospital, the General Hospital, and it's going good, and, and we've got to get to a meeting. And I said, we will, and I'll call you, and I have, and, and we haven't been able to get together. But the proof for what comes out of something like this is you never give up. The reminder that one more time you never give up with the guy that's still suffering, still hacking out there, because you never know. It was only a prayer, Norm, that you're going to stand up from time to time. Do it, buddy. Hell, take a minute out of your busy life and send it up, will you, for the guy that, that's still suffering out there, because you never know. God moves in strange and mysterious ways, and no matter what you do or you don't do, that's the way it's going to be. And who says that some Sunday morning you sit in the meeting and you look next to you, and who sits there but a guy maybe you shared a bar stool or a cell or whatever, and he sits there because maybe you took the time to send the prayer up to the guy that's still trying to cut it. Well, I didn't make the program then, obviously. I went back out and drank and worked as hard as could to get here. I went to work for one of the biggest and the largest construction firms in the world at that time, in the concrete pipe business. And I stayed with these people 11 years. And in the 11-year period of time, I was blessed to be in the right place at the right time. I got the right job. And the right job to me was a job that paid a lot of money. I had to have the money because I got a high overhead. If you got a high overhead, well, man, you got to have that money to meet that overhead. I'm a bar drinker, and a bar drinker packs a high overhead. Yeah, said that. No question about it. Not only that, but about that time, I met a red-headed Irish woman, and we decided to get married. And that created a problem. That's a big overhead now. It didn't start out that way. My bar associates told me, oh, no, don't go off half-cocked on this marriage. You'll make sure this woman's got a decent job. But she had a good job. In the beginning, a few months later, she walks in the house, and she says, Norm, I've been to the doctor, and I'm pregnant, but i got to quit my job. Well, 
God, the whole house comes down around me. If you were selling alcoholics for me to want to believe it, I want to believe that. You don't know. But then you find out that this is fact, so you become big hearted. I think to myself, well, hell, that caper takes about nine months. We'll give her two to get on her people, get the rotten job back, and everything's going to be just like it was. The story of the alcoholic's life, and everything's going to be just like it was. Hell, that was 26 years ago. That woman ain't turned to taps since that day, you know. God Almighty, she got herself in that shape eight times. I couldn't believe it. Coming in every other year, here she goes, St. Luke's again, you know. God, I'm sitting on that bar stool, I can't make a bar bill in there. She goes. And other problems with this woman. Her being redheaded and Irish, well, she had a violent temper and a rotten disposition. She used to yell at me a lot. And any alcoholic can't tell race that people yell at it. She's a very sensitive person. Yeah, you're out there drunk two or three days, and you come home. You're tired. Yeah, you've been busy out there. Yeah. You're tired, you're a little sick and a little junky as you walk out of the house, and you'd like a little love, affection, and understanding when you walk through the door. Oh, hell no, I walk through the door for 20 feet, she's gone, you're drunk again. Yeah. Or she smells your breath. And I'd always stand there dumbfounded. I wonder who the hell tells her all that stuff. You gotta get her on the defensive. Isn't that the way the thing goes? You gotta get that woman on the defensive. Oh, you start out by going, uh, do you know who you're talking to? Ah! Yeah, that get her right there, though. Been talking the same slob now for over eight years, but you want to be reassured. <clears throat> so you introduce yourself to her. If there are two people here, that's a fringe benefit in AA. You won't have to introduce yourself to your wife anymore. Periodically, I used to stand there and go, I'm Norm, baby, that's who the hell I am, and don't you forget it. And you go, I'm Norm, baby, don't forget it, you know. Mimic me, it's only the way them Irish can do it. Sometimes that happened when I had one of my dearest friends with me. He's my new bar associate, my new, my new business partner. I met him at the joint last night and invited him home. There he is, you know, the blind leading the blind. You're standing there and he's going, well, there's no money. That's it, you know. You wish he'd die. You gotta save faith. So you give her one more chance. You say, apologize to me and my best friend that I can't remember his name. And if you don't, I believe it. And this time's different than all the other 30 times I ever left here. How do you like that? She's hysterical now. She goes down the hall, throws all the clothes out. And you pick up the clothes, don't you? And you pack them out to the car. The clothes-packing alcoholic is a joy to his neighborhood. <laughs> when you get tired of watching your television, you can watch him. There he goes, you arm all the clothes, huh? <laughs> Turkey deed alcoholic out there in these shorts, carrying a hour of clouds, you know. And before he leaves, he wants to notify the neighborhood, so he honks on his horn. Honk, 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 you know, I'm leaving. There he goes down the street. Two days later, here he comes back again. Yeah. He comes home Sunday afternoon on a flat tire, you know, the old. Two drugs to change, and he drives on the rim drivers, they call them. The old tire's flopping in there, and the sparks are flying, and he pulls that car down the street. He, he turns that baby into the driveway, pulls it up on the lawn, opens the door, and he falls out. There he is. Getting up onto the lawn, the first thing you think about is, I wonder if anybody saw me. Yeah. Because you think it only on your drink, isn't that right? Sure. And then you have to rationalize it. I go, hell, if they saw me laying on the lawn, they probably thought I had the flu. Yeah. 
everybody lays on a lot of cotton. Who knows you know that? We're the only people that know it. Well, then you go through the routine, don't you? You go in there and you stand there in front of that red-headed woman and you jump. One more lie, one more promise, you go home the door. The tears are fine. You say, God, I got a kid, baby. Give me a break. I got a deal for you. New priest, new parish. No, 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 New doctor, new whatever. I'll do it all. Let me in. A schemer. And he schemes. And he gets in. And as soon as you get in, he starts scheming. He gets back out again, don't you? Yeah. So you can get in that car and drive back down to that saloon. Get down there, Mentioned before. Oh, that bar stool. I'm a bar drinker too. I like them joints. I like the dark lights. I like the rotten music. It hammers at you. I like the smell that kind of hangs in there. Isn't that something? Who needs the desert? You just sit there and suck that baby up. Then it blows it all out. Don't it? God! I like building castles at the Air Foreman Corporations. I like sitting there talking to the giants of industry, wondering what the poor slobs are doing tonight when all the big money's around you there. When you get tired of talking and lying to each other, and about maybe midnight or one o'clock in the morning, you're sitting there on that fire stool and you can look in the mirror. And you know why they put mirrors in bars? They put them there for alcoholics, so that he may sit there and stare at himself. But that they call it the perpetual Maybelline look, that wide eye. Now there he is. It's like you never saw yourself before. What you good-looking devil, you? Yeah. As you're bringing that drink up, you get side of your arm. You know, you look good. <laughs> what a low-built killer you are, yeah. 150 pounds ringing wet. I couldn't lick my lips in them days, let alone any help. <laughs> but that whiskey makes a killer out of you, don't it? A lover and a killer. Some nights you get so drunk, you can't remember whether you're a lover or a killer. You say, you know, what face to make in the mirror. You're wondering why all the dollies aren't down there at your end of the bar. You got a $30 smiling Frankie Gordon suit on. Sure. You got 50 cents worth of whiskey down the front of you. You got a little chili and mustard on your necktie. You smell bad, you can't talk. You're the mumbler. That's big for you. Nothing comes out, and I'm one step away from disaster. If I got to go to the men's room, it's all over. There he goes. Go. Yeah. Go over to the St. Gabriel Valley. There he is. Well, you make some cute mark to the bartender, he ain't sexy yet. That's never enough. If you got my kind of personality, you go for 87. Yeah, 87 is another cute remark to the bartender. Now you're opening the door with your head going through to end up out there in the parking lot, the gravel parking lot, to end up with one of those famous diseases alcoholics have called pavement rash. Yeah. It's a scab you get from here around here, you know. It's from rooting your head through gravel parking lot. Some alcoholics prefer pyrocantha bushes. They get it all done in one night. Oh, that raking all over. Crawling out of bushes, hedges, or whatever, or parking lots to end up in the front seat of your car to go to bed. Okay. Car sleepers. We've got lots of car sleepers in AA. You can always tell a new guy if he's done any recent car sleeping. He generally sits in his first meeting, you know, like that. It's just, yeah. For having your head screwed under the armrest all night, isn't it? And when that sun zooms through the windshield at 6 o'clock in the morning, that's called a spiritual awakening before I am. <laughs> you bring yourself to attention there in the front seat, boy. Oh, God, your stomach hurts and your mouth tastes terrible and your teeth itch. You look down there on your dashboard, you threw up on that baby last night. You left your lights on, too. Or did you ever think the window was down? It was up. Oh, that's whack, whack. Knocks the hell out of your head, too, you know. 
Anyone sat there and said to myself, time to get your drinking fun. I'm having a good time. Get down. I gotta get the hell out of LA though. They got that rotten whiskey in LA. I gotta get back down to Big Spring, Texas. God, did they love me in Big Spring. Yeah. That pearl beer and that bootleg whiskey, or was it El Paso that they loved me? Or Dallas? Or maybe it was Moses Lake, Washington, or Seattle? Albuquerque or Phoenix or Tucson or on. In reality, you know. You know they didn't. If you sat there and took an honest look at yourself, well, you know that every time you went out now, it seemed to be getting worse and never got better. But you always felt that someday, somewhere, you're going to be able to control it, don't you? That somewhere you're going to be able to drink like your old man and your brothers and your people that work and do business with it, you know, I'm sure. Around some corner, somewhere, someday, I'll control it, the obsession. They talk about it in chapter 3 as every alcoholic goes through. And as I wandered through the lottery of my life, the whiskey took away every loving thing I had of anything in my life. Everything that I had was taken away, the men anything to me. I recall the day when I went home, and there on the front porch was the belongings, and there stands a red-headed woman. And there she said, Norm, you're a drunken bum. Norm, you never lived to be 35 years old, and you're drinking yourself to death. Norm, me and the kids are neurotic because of you. We're scaring to death of you. How are you coming in, Norm? You're going to tear up the house again? You're going to stand there with that loaded 25 automatic waving all around. Now, what you going to do, Norm? I'm going to come in Sunday morning and see you laying on the floor and the kids are all around there crying because you can't get up. No more, Norm. Well, you drug us down that gutter to see if you're ever going to get us. You get the hell out of our lives, Norm. I sit here and I look down the street. I wait to see the car come home and don't come. I hear a siren run and I die again. I think the cops got you. But they're trying to find you laying dead in the middle of the street, Norm. You're never coming back, so we can't go any farther. I'll always love you, buddy, but you tore out all the feeling I ever had for you, one way or another. So please leave. And you walk out of your car and you drive away, don't you? You say to yourself, as each and every alcoholic you said has gone through it, Christ God, why me, buddy? Why me? And I'm not that bad a guy. I want a friend going with them bombs out there. Why me? You and I, we know. If you drink enough booze long enough and hard enough, ah, it's only going to be a matter of time, isn't it? The wheels of alcoholism grind very slow, but very fine. You give it enough time and it's going to take away everything you got. Just a matter of time. Sure, there's isolated cases of people put up with this crap for 30 years. Oh, he's hoping this jackass is going to straighten out. 30 years they watch him flop in and out of the house. 30 years they pick up the pieces. 30 years they lie for him. 30 years of promises they can never keep. Hell, I wouldn't put up with it 30 days, let alone 30 years. But God gives him a lot of strength, kind of a left-handed thing he hands down to him. Thank God he does, huh? Because we have the opportunity to see one of the many miracles in Alcoholics Anonymous. The miracle of seeing a man and his woman coming through the door to that first meeting. And a guy, he don't look too good, and he's hung out. And a woman, you look at her, and she don't look too good either. And in her eyes, the story says, this jackass has tried everything in town and nothing works and this isn't going to work either. I'm sure of it, but we'll try. But I can see the same couple come through the same door and just a couple of months have gone. And a woman, and she's sharp down now. And the guy, he's sharp too, and his eyes are clear and they seem to be laughing. And you look in a woman's eyes and the story is complete and it's changed. And it's it. I've been waiting 15 years for this to happen and finally it's happened today. We're happy that we've ever been in our life. And this is made possible through a miracle. It's unique that we choose to call Alcoholics Anonymous. God love it. God bless you. For the new folks, though, we can't guarantee, can we, that this is the way it's going to be. No, we can only guarantee you here a sobriety and a way of life, buddy. A way of life. And if you're a ditch digger, you're going to be a better ditch digger. We don't guarantee you're going to make a ton of scratch or drop a big iron or live in a big house on the hill. Or your woman's ever going to call you back, that may never come. The only guarantee we can give you is sobriety and a way of life. But whatever you're doing, you're going to be better at. And the day will come, I'm sure, if you'll buy the package that's available here, the sobriety and the way of life, the day will come when they will respect you. And the guy says to me one night, 
Respect me. That's not a hell of a lot, Norma. I said, buddy, it's a hell of a lot more than I had when I got here. Because nobody but nobody respected me if you get no more than that. It's more than most alcoholics come in and look for. They regain the respect of the people. Losing families doesn't necessarily bring folks to AA. I think it has to be kind of a, an aggregate, a total of many things. I've got to believe that the clincher in my life was that the day that the boss called me in and says, the next time I get you drinking on the job, you're busted, you're through, you're out of here, and you'll never leave LA County for this company again, never. I don't think that was it. Or the day that the woman left. I think that the day that I woke up to the fact that a man had walked into my life and he says, Norm, buddy, you've abused the privilege of owning it. we got to have it. And he turned away by self-respect. The day I stood there and recognized I had no self-respect and I didn't need a mirror to know or to understand it. But I stood there and I knew that I had absolutely nothing because nobody but nobody, myself included, respected me. A commodity that's the greatest thing a man owns, isn't it? We know men that spend hundreds and thousands and millions of dollars trying to buy self-respect. But the guy says she can't have it. It's not a commodity. You don't go to the supermarket and check it out. No, no. Come on, this self-respect is burnt. You can earn it. And what a break that we have Alcoholics Anonymous because we have the opportunity the second time around in our life to regain our self-respect. You couldn't buy it with all the money in the world, but as the man told me when I gave it to the program, he said, for $3.50 and a little bit of your time, Norm, we'll give you back your self-respect. A little bit of your time. And in that book, in the book is the 12 steps, and in the 12 steps is the way of life, and in the way of life is your self-respect. The day I realized that I no longer had this, <clears throat> the day that it's psychological second, maybe, that I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. That I'm tired of hurting myself. That I don't want to go any farther and I've got to believe. And I believe it today because today is all I got. That that day occurred in February of 1954. But I got up off of the rotten floor and I was sick. And I walked in and I picked up the telephone and called the central office in Los Angeles. And I talked to a man and God loved this man. He was one of those givers. The reason he was such a grand man, he's learned early in his AA life. I'm going to keep what I can I've got to give it away. And he did. This guy's name was John I'm sure John doesn't mind me breaking his head and John died some after I'd been sober about a year, a year and a half. And he was a marvelous individual. I had the opportunity many times to meet this man that I talked to that Sunday in the AA office. He not only pivoted himself in that office, but you go down to the Alhambra group on a Thursday night. And you walk up the stairs at the top of the stairs. Who's standing there? A guy standing there named John. And he's looking for new people. And you walk through the door, he can spot him. And he slapped me on the back and he took you in. And he poured you a cup of coffee and he says, son, keep coming back. And above all, you know, don't get impatient, son. He said, remember something. It took you 15 years, one day at a time, to get yourself down there. Down there. And it's going to take you maybe 15 years, one day at a time, to bring yourself back up. Don't be impatient. Give it some time. Get to a lot of meetings. Keep an open mind. Keep coming back. And that's the guy I talked to. That's the guy that said, here's some numbers you call. And the second guy, a number I call with a man with home and he come out to see me. My sponsor. He turns out to be my sponsor. Hard-hearted sponsor. Went to school, you know, for hard-hearted sponsors. This guy annoyed the hell out of me. He was a very old man. He was about 50, I think. <laughs> he had a very caustic attitude and an abrasive voice. And he sat there going any length to get it. And it just made me want to throw up. He said that a half a dozen times if he said it once. If you want what we have, buddy, you got to go to any length to get it. He says you went to any length to get the booze. And he was the kind of sponsor, you know, they never give you a chance to answer a question. No. <clears throat> he said, you went to any length to get the booze, didn't you? Said, yeah, you lie for it, cheated for it, con for it, stole for it, anything. And so, you go to any length to get the program. That's the way it is here. He says, me and my friends and my group, we don't pick guys up and take them to me. That's a softer, easier way. 
No, no. You get in your car tonight and you drive down with me. If you haven't got a car, take the bus. If you haven't got a bus or a bus money, walk. It's a hell of a walk, but you'll make it all right. He said, if I can make it, you can make it. And I thought, that's the only true thing that jackass said, you know. Uh, yeah. What a rotten old man he is. And I was a little upset. I got in my car that night and I drove down to that Temple City Grove. <clears throat> so, in the beginning, when I got the car getting ready to drive down, I was thinking, you know, I hope he is in that parking lot and then I'll crush him with my car. That's what I'm going to do. But you know that soon leaves, because when you're going out to attend your first meeting, the things are run through your mind. You want, what does it say? Hey, I'm going to see somebody that knows me, and he's going to find out i got a drinking problem. You know? Sure, they're going to show me a way to handle the booze. I'll become a social drinker, drink like my old man again. Is that what they're going to show me? They're going to get the heat off. God, i got so much heat on. i got heat on all over town. Are they going to get the heat off and pay the bills, and I'm being foreclosed out of that house? going to help that. Well, what are they going to do with the curiosity of this program in the beginning, and it drives you in, no. And you come on down with the curiosity wondering what it is. And so as I turned into that Temple City meeting, my sponsor was standing in this parking lot, and he too came up and slapped me on the back and took me on into my first meeting. The Temple City grew up in those days. He used to be down in Rosemead. I just can't throw that out. If you're looking for it, it meets in Arcadia today. <clears throat> Doesn't mean too much. In any event, the cliche of this group. We used to have a liquor store on the corner, and then a group, and then the cemetery. And the cliche... The cliche of the group on, if you get by here and stop here, you won't make it over there, you know, yeah. <laughs> and then all the donkeys and laugh, and what the hell's so funny about that when you're new? <laughs> he said, if you keep drinking, you're going to die out there, and I didn't think it was very funny. They took me on in. This is one of them wealthy groups you hear about in AA. We had maybe 100, 125 in a group in them days, and they had so much money that they had donuts before and after the meeting. Can you imagine anything like that? Hell of a deal. And they'd always buy three or four jelly donuts, and they'd save them for new guys coming in, you know. You're subjected to the sense of humor of the alcoholic immediately. They spot a new guy coming through the door, they go up to you and go, Oh, how are you? We're glad to have you have a cup of coffee. Here's a jelly donut. I don't want the donuts. Now, we were looking down something left on the street last night, you know. And then they all sat around going, did you see him? I, yeah, I thought he was joking there. And alcoholic ever gets over, he gets a warm sense of humor about this thing. And the only good part of it was, if you stayed around there for a month, they'd let you do it to the next new guy that came in. And you're subjected to all of this fall right in the beginning. We used to stand around before the meeting, everybody's drinking coffee and eating these rotten donuts and talking at the same time. Everybody's talking about something different. You ever notice that? Yeah, and you're standing here, you're brand new, it's your first diet, you know, you're listening to this one guy, and you're waiting to get to the touchline of the story, before you get to the touchline of the story, you don't die interrupting, you know, there he's there. You spend years and they wouldn't hear the end of the story. In the beginning, you hear that phrase, keep coming back. And you think, that's why. Yeah. You know and I know that isn't a fact, but it's dumbfounding, isn't it? You're standing there, all of this is going on. And you're sick, you know, and they're yelling and smoking four cigarettes at a time, it seems like. Then the meeting begins, and then everybody lights up more cigarettes, you know. Your eyes are burning, your throat gets raw, you're sicker and orange, you're hung over. And then the man stands in front of the group and he tells everybody what a jackass he is, and they become hysterical over it. This guy that was talking that night had been in 80, 90 jails, kind of lost track of him after a while. And he said, God Almighty, I didn't think they built that many jails. But the more jails he goes to, the more they laugh. The more he gets worked over and beat up, the more they laugh. 
the big lobotomy bit in the world beside the laughter. Alcoholics Anonymous, they call this thing, you know. The guy talks about drinking Jamaican ginger, giving the Jake Lake, crippling him up so bad to put him in a hospital for two and a half months, and they were out of their chairs with a cereal. Yeah, the funniest thing they'd ever heard was that that man couldn't walk. you drank or where you drank or the monster consumed is what it's doing to you. And if it's tearing up any part of your life, buddy, you don't have to go any farther than you've been. And I sat there and I could say, yes, man, you're right. I don't have to go any farther than I've been. You said that I didn't. I don't want to. My life has torn the hell out of my life and I don't want any more. And you said I didn't have to have it. And I believe that speaker. I had to. I look at this guy, you know, this guy is nine and a half years. He's sharp and his eyes are clear. He's got a set of threads on this run of a hundred and a half. I'm thinking if he didn't get nothing else in this AA outfit, didn't he get a set of drapes out of it, though? Yeah. Oh, boy, that's all right. I'll stick around a little give me some, too. Which proves the point, don't it, that 80% of the people never remember 80% of what you have to say, but they never forget how you look. By example is the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, which takes you back to that cliche that I heard years ago. What he is speaks so loud, I cannot hear a word he says. By God, by example. And he was example, and if I wanted what he had, I'd come back here to find it. And I wanted a little of it. He talked about coming to this AA group and this program and buying a package. And how one day, America come to pass. His woman had divorced him and remarried. His kids had hated him. And this day, they came down to see him. One by one, they come to see him. And they learned to like him. And then to love him. And then to respect him. And then I had the force I talked around that night. You know what I've seen? I was these three or four tough AA guys sitting there in that group. And the tears are running down their eyes. And they're all choked up. And they're crying. Not for themselves, but for him. Because they were happy. And the story of AA was told that night, as I understand the story of AA. And maybe it's oversimplification, but it's my understanding is that they laughed because they were miserable and they cried because they were happy and they called it Alcoholics Anonymous. Sure. How do you clear away the wreckage of your rotten, lousy past? How do you move that crap out? Don't you learn, and it's not the beginning to learn to laugh a little bit, to be able to laugh, to bring it up, to start, because when you get here, there's nothing to laugh about. But then today, in spite of yourself, you people that are new, in spite of yourself, the day's going to come when you're going to start to laugh a little. You know, you're going to sit there at that meeting, you're going to go, oh, oh God, oh, I'm going to but it's going to start to come out, isn't it? And before you know it, well, you're going to start to buy a little that's available here. You're going to go out and make the amends and buy the package. The total package of the program and the package is when you make the transition. When you quit taking and you start to give. You give a little for the hell of it. The no compromise kind of giving you and I understand here in A. Not the kind you can twist and turn and use for your own benefit. Just the giving for the pure hell of it. And this isn't something that's normal for the likes of me or you either. No, no. Alcoholics are takers. I laid out of that city street and I stole every little thing it was. I took it all. I thought I had the key to happiness. Christ, I never had the key chain. I never knew what happiness was until I, I quit taking it and I started to give a little. I give a little for the hell of doing it. And we have, you see, available to us the opportunity to get it. Pick up the ashtray, make the coffee. <clears throat> Secretary of a group, sentence service, general service, institutional work, 12 step call, a greater, greater way to, to give yourself for the hell of it. And if you do, my friends who are new, the reward is insurmountable. Not something in a material sense. No, no, but something in a sense of well-being. 
That's what I look for, with a sense of well-being. I drink whiskey to feel good. I get up on that plateau and I have that sense of well-being, I feel good. It was temporary, though, wasn't it? It was gone. And I woke up in the morning. And a friend of mine had come to see me one more time. His name was Remorse. And he reached in and he tore my guts out. And the only thing that put Remorse out of my life was whiskey. And I traded in the whiskey that I found out there for the honesty and the giving of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in turn, I was rewarded with a sense of well-being that I've been able to experience from time to time. As I walk down the city street and the wave comes all over, and I feel so fine, and I can't understand why. And in the bitter end, I know and you know, it's not going to be what you accumulate that's going to make the difference when they're hanging you out to dry. It isn't going to be the material of the car you find in the garage that's going to make the difference, is it? No, no. It's going to be what you give away that makes a difference. What you give away and you want nothing back. And we as the program have the opportunity to give a little from time to time, just for the hell of doing it. But I'd like to try to tell every guy here that's a new man or a new woman that after you approach this program that every day is a holiday and every meal is a banquet. But that isn't the way it is. What we're going to give you here is a clip to stand out there and be counted like everybody else. That's what we had to offer. Stand out there in that jungle and be counted like everybody else. That's what we have. But if you're big enough norm to take the good days, you've got to be big enough to take the rotten and the lousy. You and I don't look forward to it, do we? No, I don't want to see any more of them lousy days. But they are... They're going to come. I've seen some, and I'm going to see some more, and so are you, but I don't want any more. No, no, I don't want any more in 1962. I don't want to walk out of St. Louis Hospital again going, Jesus Christ, God, old buddy, old friend up there. What the hell are you doing to me? But you know, I've been sober eight years, God. You know, I used to think I'd have a bad for a year or something. You know, give me a break. I've been around a long time, buddy. This grief, this heartbreak, this misery, you asked me to pack it too much, old friend. I can't make it. Yet deep inside, you know, don't you? Deep inside, you know, the old shooter up there, he's all right. He never gives you more than what you can pack. He gives the big loads to the big horses. And the small ones to guys named Norm. Instead of standing there, buddy, crying a poor mouth about what you didn't get or what he asked you to carry or what you think of what you have. And if you feel real bad about something, take a moment out of your busy life and look down the street. And what do you see down the street? Well, hell, I see a guy. There he goes. And he carries a load ten times the size of mine. And the only difference between he and I is that he carries it with great dignity. He doesn't find it necessary to cry a poor mouth about what he didn't get. He stood just for a moment and says, thank you, my friend, for what I have. And when I come again, God, give me the strength to stand and to thank you for what I got. If for nothing else, let me thank you, my friend, for the 19 years and four months you let me run down and walk down the sunny side of the street. Let me thank you for the sun that I've seen on that street. Let me thank you and know that above all, that men will die and never see 19 days, 19 weeks, or 19 months. They'll walk down the street of booze and fantasy and busted dreams and broken hearts and tears by the back and forth, and they'll die on that rotten street out there. Then some will cross over and come over to see us and be here for a while, and they won't buy it, and they'll go back again, and they too will die, maybe. But unfortunately, each and every year brings one to pass. Last holiday season, a, a call from a friend of mine, and he says, a buddy died. He died in a rotten joint down in South Elmine, in a rotten motel. And the booze was all over. And they picked him up. And they took him out, and they had a funeral. And five came, for all intents and purposes. Three gals from Al-Anon came, another Alki and myself, and the other AA guy was drunk. And I looked around, and I thought, God, what a waste. What a pure waste this is. God, give me the strength, will you? The next time that I think it's tough, the next time that I can't tolerate it, the next time the Lord has been to ask me to back, Give me the strength to thank you, my friend, for what I've seen, for what I have. Give me the strength to thank you for the 19 years and four months that I've walked down the sun and the sunny side of that street. For the 19 years I woke up and made the decision of which way I want to live. But nobody makes that decision for me. I make it. Let me thank you, my friend, 
for not having to compromise my life nor justify my existence. Let me thank you for the journey I've had and the self-respect that I've expended and felt from people and myself. Let me thank you for the days that I've worked and gotten in the car and driven home to see a red-headed woman who's my woman. And I live there in that house with her. For I came home one day and she said, you're acceptable. And I walk through that door time and time again now to see a red-headed woman. And I'm respected by her because I'm her old man. I'm respected by the few of them bandits that are still left living on my joint because I'm their father. <laughs> and nobody cried at the old... But nobody cried at my house today because their old man was drunk and tore it up. I haven't heard a kid of mine scream at me for years not to hit their mother. I've watched them go from small ones into big ones and I've sent them to school. And I've got a couple of them who've got education and nobody in my family ever cut it that far. But I've got daughters that I've taken downtown and I've bought them high-heeled shoes and prom dresses. I've walked in stores with them and they were chickens and they put on shoes and dresses and they became women. And they looked at me and I looked at them and we respected each other. I for them for what they had become in me because I was their old man and for what I was that moment at that time. And a daughter across town that I can call up from time to time and we have chats and talk about it all. And when the phone and the conversation is over, she says she knows something bad that I say, well, Jesus, I love you. And it's like somebody reached through the phone and just kind of gives you a hard pinch. And then one day, some three and a half years ago, I had the opportunity to send out invitations to, to a wedding to have people come. And some 400, they came. But I can remember the day I could send out 400 invitations for people to come to see me shot, and nobody comes, do they? No. But that day they came, and they sat at the church, and they played the music. And another little chicken, she walked out the door, and she's got a white dress on. And she came up, and she grabbed her old man's arm, and that was me. And I looked at her, and I cried, and she looked as we cried, the both of us, as we stood there. And I took her down the aisle, and gave her to a jackass, you know, she married <laughs> Before that, old jackass ever got there, there was only me and there was only her. And the, the results of it was all that I could look out in that sea of people and I could be part of it because I could remember the day I could stand in a room full of people and I stood by myself. Lonely, you know, and I know, lonely Christ is the alcoholic. The day you stand there and you tell the world you don't need a friend and you tell them all that inside you say to yourself, Jesus, I wish I had a friend. And that day I had the opportunity to look out and I saw, and what I saw was 60, 70 guys from AA, and they were my friends and they looked sharp and their eyes were clouded and clear and some had tears and they looked at me. And I knew what was running through their mind and they were trying to say, Norm, buddy, Jesus, you, you sure look sharp coming down that aisle. Too bad, Norm, the people in this church, the balance of them, don't know who you are and where you came from and what you have and what it took to bring you here. And as moments like that, I want to scream to the world and say, Charlie, Jesus, isn't it a day? Isn't it too bad that I can't tell them all where we came from and what we have? Too bad we can't introduce them to all our hundreds and thousands of friends because without these friends and without this program, but for the grace of God and Alcoholics Anonymous and these friends, I could have missed it all. God bless you. Thanks a million.